Support for Boston Public Radio comes from New England Recovery Center, providing inpatient addiction treatment in state-of-the-art facilities located in Westboro, Mass. All major insurance plans accepted. Learn more at newenglandrecoverycenter.org. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, President Trump wants to sign on to a Supreme Court challenge launched by Texas and 17 other attorneys general seeking to invalidate President-elect Biden's win in four battleground states. Is this a sign of extreme partisan division, which may never end? In just a few minutes, NBC political director Chuck Todd will update us on the latest from D.C. When a COVID-19 vaccine is approved for Americans, it remains unclear just how many people will get it. Aside from logistical concerns, medical experts say a pre-existing anti-vaccine movement and long-standing distrust of the medical community, particularly by people of color, present challenges to its effective rollout. So, should the vaccine be mandatory? We'll open the lines to ask you. Then we'll talk to Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins for another edition of Ask the DA. That's ahead on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Jim Brady, I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? Fine, thank you. Good. So if the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over and over and expect different results, what does that say about Trump loyalists? Despite dozens of judges and courts rejecting challenges to the election, Republican attorneys general in 17 states are backing Trump and his legal campaign to flip the election results. Joining us online for his take on this and other headlines is Chuck Todd. Chuck, of course, is moderator of Meet the Press, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 1030 on NBC Boston. That's Channel 10 on most providers. Also the host of Meet the Press Daily and MSNBC and the political director for NBC News. Good morning, Chuck Todd. Well, good uh, good day to you guys. How are you? Uh, good, good day to you, too, Chuck Todd. So let's start um, um, with, with what Jim just talked about, these uh, Republican yeah. attorney generals in 17 states are with the Trump, uh, with President Trump um, in his efforts to flip the election. And as we know, polls show that um, a minority, uh, one poll, 24 percent, only 24 percent of Republicans test the results. I hope it's OK to say before we're on the air, you said this is you find this a little upsetting, Chuck Todd. Mm-hmm. And every, well, like you should add, like, wait a second, and every what? night the president says he won the election. Every night, it'd be bad enough if the president was tweeting. The president tweeting what he's doing is damaging enough. The attorney general of Texas, who, by the way, is under under uh, an investigation cloud himself and maybe pardon shopping here for what it's worth. But anyway, so or, or, or wanting to run for governor or both. It would be bad enough. His lawsuit, as absurd as it is, would also be outrageous to see that he's joined this. And then to think that 17 other state attorneys general also signed on that. So 18 chief law enforcement officers, statewide chief law enforcement officers, do not. And by the way, it, it, their reasoning for signing on to this lawsuit by the Supreme Court is there are serious, serious concerns have been raised. Concerns? Concerns are not evidence. I have serious concerns about the president's fitness. But I have no evidence to question that. You and I, we, the three of us have had this conversation, right? We have yep. concerns. But that is not evidence. That is not, a, that is not enough to, say, to go and say, hey, uh, you, better, you, you, you better check him into a facility. 
right? We don't have evidence. It's, it's just the, the fact that this is where we are. Um, and you have so many Republicans who, while not signing on to this nonsense, can't bring themselves to say that it's nonsense. You know, and I have one of those this weekend, one of those senators um, who will, uh, in Lamar Alexander, who on one hand thinks this stuff is ridiculous and on the other hand can't bring himself to say President-elect Joe Biden. So it, yep. it, it is just astonishing um, where we're at and how so many elected Republicans have decided that mob rule via Twitter is what they should fear the most. Not only mob rule, supporting an attempted coup, I think, is not hyperbolic. And can I add one thing to Marjorie and your list? The Arizona Republican Party retweets this guy who says he's willing to die for something, give my life for this fight, meaning the election of Trump. And on the retweet, the Arizona Republican Party says he is, meaning willing to give his life for this fight. Are you? I mean, you know, my fear is, as appalling as as this is, as much as it is an attempt to undercut democracy, with $200 million or whatever Trump has got uh, walking out the door to spend as he will uh, uh, post-January 20th, why should anyone think that this is going to be any different come February or April or next year? That's the question I have, is that I'm curious. Look, I, I have a sliver of hope that the elected Republicans – fear will will start to fade once January 21st arrives and that over time they will realize, you know, that he has no power and that his threats grow more empty by the day. But the problem is, is that, you know, is that, and the thing is, we all know that Trump knows he lost and Trump knows all these things, but he's just doing all of this in order to, to retain control of the Republican party. And, and that's the question I have is, 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 is he going to be aggressively, is he going to aggressively use use his platform to undermine any Republican that attempts to help Biden govern? And if that's what he does early on, does that scare them into ever doing anything? And then we essentially have a paralyzed Biden government for, for four years. And, you know, that's the extreme version of how this could play out. And it, it's certainly what what Trump is trying to trying to make happen, which is, I mean, you know, you, I think there's nothing more un-American than doing that. Yeah. It, well, you wonder too but about. I question the patriot, the president. I do question the president's patriotism. I'm sorry. I don't think well, he's a patriot. I am right in line behind you. By the way, he's talking about what did he say yeah, the other day? I on really Monday do. Or Tuesday. I don't, he does it's not like respect a... this democracy. Does not respect this constitution. Does not respect anything about it. Our, our history. I, I question really if he's a true patriot because he's not acting like one. We're talking to Chuck Todd from Meet the Press. Chuck Todd, um, not a very good uh, job report. Jump into jobless claims. I think 947,000 was the number I read the, this morning. So I'm wondering whether this bad news uh, gets uh, relief uh, floundering. States, uh, California, Colorado, Ohio are starting mm-hmm. to do stuff themselves. But, of course, states have to balance their budgets, at least we do here in Massachusetts. Um, so what little states can do dwarfs what the federal government can do. Do you think... We're going to get something here. Well, I think there's an every. I think everybody is. This is a case where I think everybody has good intentions. I rarely say that. I <laughs> say these days about members of Congress. I think the intent is to do something. I think, I think the the the, the folks negotiate. But I think we have so forgotten how to negotiate in the Trump era, and there's this fear that compromise 
is 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 capitulation. That there is a re- you can feel the hesitancy on both sides on various topics, right? Nervous about giving in on one hand if they think they can get something else, but what will the basis think? Like I, you can feel the trepidation, you can see it, um, and and frankly, so even though the intent is to do something, they really are having a hard time getting the yes, right? They're 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 just it's almost they're afraid of jumping off the cliff here. And, and for whatever reason, maybe they fear that, that they don't trust the president will sign it or they don't trust that McConnell will bring it up right or whatever it is. But there's this weird, you could just feel the trepidation. So um, I, I think, I do think there is, this is a case where I think they're all want to find a way into this, but they're afraid of acting alone. You can feel it. You know, Chuck, just just to go back for a second, to, 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 we're talking about the Republicans going along, so many of them with the president. I, no one is talking about any kind of retaliation against people that have stood up against the president. That I think it was Gabriel Sherman, the guy from Georgia, who was saying enough was enough with the death threats and um, Krebs. You know that he was fired, obviously. But I mean, do, do we think there may be? A purging of those kind of people out of the Republican Party. Trump's trying to purge them out. Look what he said about the lieutenant governor of uh, of, uh, yeah. of of Georgia, who's a big supporter of Trump's. He called him a moron. Right. Uh, I mean, the answer is he goes after everybody. Marjorie, but I, mean, who, I guess what I'm wondering is always: does it continue? Does it continue? You know, into January, February, March, and stuff. But, and that's the question I have. Right? Is how powerful is this Twitter feed still going to remain? Um, it's a question I've asked other Republicans, and they. You can tell there are ones that are hoping the power fades. Um, I could hear it in the answer that Lamar Alexander gave, gave to me. It's like, we'll see how Republicans, you know, I think there are plenty of, you know, it looks to me Joe Biden is setting, setting up a center-left government, right? He's not pushing the progressive envelope here. I mean, no matter how you look at it, it he's putting together a very sort of mainstream Democratic cabinet. Mm-hmm. Um, you can feel it. There is plenty of center-left, center-right work that can be done in a Joe Biden presidency. The question is whether those Republicans like a Rob Portman um, or a Pat Toomey or a Lindsey Graham, who ideologically should be very comfortable with some of the moves Biden is going to do, whether they feel as if any work with Biden gets punished by Trump, right? Does Trump make working with Biden under any circumstance some sort of penalty? And you know, right now he's acting that way. Does that continue? I look, I do think the fact that you had a whole bunch of Republicans willing to vote against Trump on that defense spending bill is at yes. least a sign that there are some who would like to move on. OK, we're talking to Chuck Todd, political director of NBCU's and host of, Meet, host of Meet the Press, Meet the Press Daily and MSNBC. We're going to keep talking to him after this brief break. You listen to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie. Again, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Meet the Press's Chuck Todd. You know, Chuck, I'm going to try to match your uh, exasperation of a few minutes ago and raise you one. Today is the day where we're hopefully going to get uh, emergency use authorization and the first round of, of distribution of the vaccine begins shortly thereafter. 3,000 plus people died yesterday. There are parties at the White House there are parties at the State Department unmasked with Mike Pompeo with his arm around people posing 
for photographs. There's concern for Rudy Giuliani repeatedly expressed by the president, but not a word about almost 300,000 dead people in this country. There's no question. I don't think I have a question at the end of this. It's just I, I... in my wildest, most negative, cynical dreams, I could never, ever imagine anything like this in our government. You know, it's a reminder. Look, first of all, the numbness that the country collectively seems to be at least showing itself to this death toll. And, and, and you know, how that were. I mean, you know, that's in some ways, sadly, human nature, right? You know, one death overseas of an American soldier and it could rally the country. Right. Um, but 270,000 deaths to this virus and, and we're, you know, going to holiday parties and it, it is sort of, I, I find the split screen odd and it continues to be unexplainable. I, you know, it was so odd. To, I had Deborah Brooks on Sunday with a mask. I noticed and, um, the whole she, time. She was, Look, and I think she, you know, I, 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 I fully believe she was, as, I think she was as genuine as she could be. Yeah. I think she was making a statement by wearing the mask the whole time. Yep. Right. You know, she wasn't going to criticize the president directly, no matter how many times I reminded her that, you know, he doesn't seem to express the same warnings that she does, you know, and she just chose not to do that. But you, you go down there and you're like, you know, I, I don't know how she stays. You know, and I get that the you know if you really believe you're not being listened to, and in fact, not only not being listened to, people are acting against your advice. I don't know how you keep going, because these numbers are devastating. I mean, it's we are running out of hospital space. I mean, it is. It, can it get more tragic than that? I mean, it's like you know, here we are. I, I sit here and it's like you know, Trump's trying to damage the democracy every day a little bit more before January twentieth, and it seems as if. We're doing our best not to mitigate this virus, even as the vaccine's on its way. And it's like, Jesus, can we get to the virus? Can we get to the vaccine and, and, and actually stay a united country? And can we get to January 20th without Trump burning the place down? By the way, my quick answer to your, uh, your point about uh, how did the Burkses of the world stay is with the exception of Fauci, virtually all of them played the game from time to time. And, because uh, they all think. And they all get this disease. Everybody around Trump gets this disease. I can talk them into it. Exactly. Oh, listen to me. I have a way. You know what? They all think that. And they all end up realizing, nope, he's impossible. And you can find that from his casino executives in Atlantic City. You can find that with people yeah. that worked for him in the 80s. You can find that at people. I mean, he, he just, everybody thinks, oh, I can manage him. Oh, I can get through to him. No, you can't. Well, Chuck Todd, we only have a, a minute left, but I'm just wondering what you think is going to happen in the runoff election in Georgia. Uh, I, I watched the debate uh, with Kelly Loeffler the other night, and I think my jaw was on the floor. I couldn't believe this woman is a United States senator, uh, and I, I can't believe she's um, could possibly be elected. Look, I, I uh, to look at this just analytically, I, I you know it's pretty tough for Democrats to win these. Right. Either his history's against them on these runoffs. Um, you just look at the raw vote totals. It's pretty clear there were a lot of Biden Purdue. There were certainly a, a chunk of Biden Purdue voters and a chunk of, you know, so that gives you a hint that this is, you know, uh, that there are plenty of split ticket voters that it, particularly in those Atlanta suburbs. So, um, you know, I, I I have it. I I think that it's been a mistake for for these for for them to run as a ticket. I think the decision to 
attack Warnock is uh, by the Republicans is going to uh, get out, you know, spike, uh, you know, sort of drive up African-American turnout. Um, you know, my hunch is that we have a split decision. My hunch is one goes one way and one goes the other because I, you know, um, and I just, it's just my gut on this and it has as much to do with, I think Leffler is just way underwater and Purdue clearly was outperforming. It's like, I'd rather be Purdue than Leffler, put it that way. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> well, thank you very much. <laughs> It's like Commiseration <laughs> Central is what it is, I'll tell you. It's just, it, it, it's, look, it's hard to know. I mean, you know, 18 states want to nullify elections. Think about that. It's hard. Chuck, <clears throat> we'll talk to you next week. Thank Survive you, Chuck. well. Bye. Maybe something miraculous will happen between now and then. We're talking. Unlikely, <laughs> we're talking. Uh, to Chuck Todd, he's political director of NBC News and host of Meet the Press and Meet the Press Daily on MSNBC. We thank him very much for joining us. Up next, with the FDA on the cusp of approving the COVID vaccine for emergency use, what good will it be if people are hesitant to take it? We're taking your calls, asking should the vaccine be mandatory. The conversation is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browder. She is Marjorie Egan in the U.S. Two minutes, I guess. I don't know. Why not? Two minutes. I don't know. Okay. Uh, it's actually, this is not uh, funny at all. In fact, horrible. As we mentioned, Chuck, we set a single day record yesterday of more than 3,000 deaths from coronavirus, a number that only emphasizes the urgency of approving a vaccine. You know, the final hurdle that Pfizer faces is it races to become the first in the U.S. to have a vaccine green-lighted through this emergency use authorization. It's today's, today's FB, FDA advisory panel. This is likely the last step before the government decides to start shipping millions of doses of the vaccine around the country. The one problem, it's obvious, is that this vaccine is only as good as the confidence people have in taking it. A new Mass Inc. polls that uh, finds that 36% of Massachusetts residents would take the vaccine right away. 47% said they'll wait until after they see others get vaccinated. That makes me nervous. I'm not sure that's what they mean. It may mean I'm not doing this. The poll also highlights racial differences. 38% of white residents say they'll take the vaccine as soon as possible, compared to just 28% of black residents, 20 Two percent of Latinx uh, residents. By the way, in New Hampshire, I checked before we're on the air. Only nineteen percent of people say they will definitely take it. I'm not sure what the numbers are in Rhode Island, but with numbers like these, what will it take to get everyone vaccinated? There's a New York state legislator. You're not going to like this, Marjorie, but I do. Mm-hmm. Who has an idea? She wants to make it mandatory. A proposed bill stipulates that once the vaccine distribution begins, this is the trigger. If New Yorkers are not developing sufficient immunity, however, it's defined. The vaccine would be mandatory for those who can safely get it. We're taking your calls asking you, could that work here in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Hampshire? But on the other hand, if we can't even effectively mandate masks, would that mean that this is an empty gesture? 877-301-8970. You know, I don't understand this. We're talking to Art Kaplan yesterday. He said the only time there's ever been a federal mandate, I think he said this, was for smallpox. Everybody with whom I've spoken said his mandate's not going to happen. Charlie Baker mandated flu uh, uh, vaccinations for every uh, school kid in Massachusetts. And while I was challenged... Yeah, too many exceptions, though. I too many celebrate, exceptions. I, so fine. It's better than the exception of not getting vaccinated because you don't yep. feel like it. That's uh, true. Uh, uh, if we can mandate a flu vaccine, 
why can't we mandate a life-saving uh, vaccine so we reach immunity status uh, more quickly? So that's what I want to know. 877-301-897. I'm sure you're against it because you don't like government mandating anything. Uh, if, it, if this mandate means we live longer and safer and we are uh, immune more quickly, then I am all for it. Where are you in this? Well, you know, I, I think what might be easier and more effective is if the individual uh, places mandated. You can't come and sit at the bar unless you get a vaccine. You can't come in and sit at the restaurant unless you get a vaccine. But that's piecemeal. And the next restaurant says it's okay. The next restaurant said it's not okay. The next bar says it is okay. Well, maybe, I guess. But, I mean, it would be a selling point to me. If, if, if you're a restaurant or bar that says everybody in here has been vaccinated, that's going to make a big, a big difference to me. Unless you're one of those anti-masker, anti-vaccine people, and you're going you're gonna to go to the one that doesn't mandate it. That's the problem. Those are exactly the people we got to reach. And, by the way, I am totally sensitive. If I were mm-hmm. a black person in this country, after the experimentation that has been done on other black people – uh, and the medical racism we've we've seen, I understand the hesitancy. I do, but unless a significant chunk of uh, this population gets the vaccine, then we don't reach the immunity stage that allows us to return to life almost as uh, normal. I know people don't like mandates, but this is one that I think would save lives. And by the way, Baker was asked. Governor Baker was asked about this at yesterday's press conference, and uh, he says, "No, we're not talking about a." Uh, mandate i wish we were and maybe we will get to the point if people are hesitant as they appear to be a lot of people appear to be that we do reach uh, a mandate uh you know jim my call screen is not working so you're gonna have to do the call happy to 877-301-8970 let's start with andrew in boston you're first on boston public radio hi andrew hey jim uh first time caller uh thank you Marjorie. Thank um, you. hi so yeah, I kind of wanted to weigh in on this a little bit. Um, you know, mandatory, uh, you know, I'm not entirely concerned with, especially given the fact that, uh, you know, another uh, the discussion was just had, number one, about, you know, kind of medical racism and how that's playing a part into it. We actually have data coming out that's starting to show, I believe, um, reduced effectiveness in populations of color. And that's kind of just a, like, even if it's, you know, 5%, I believe it was it was a five percent uh, different. Doesn't sound like a lot, but again, when we're talking at this at this mass scale, I think it does matter, um, and I think it does matter that that is a significant finding that we found. Wait, 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 Andrew, Andrew, I haven't, Andrew, Andrew, stop for a second. I haven't seen the study that you're talking about. It says the uh, efficacy is lower uh, amongst uh, African Americans, but if it's ninety five percent in general. And it goes down, according to you, to 90. Uh, originally, uh, the FDA was saying the threshold that, we, that has to be met is at least 50. These are astronomically higher uh, uh, efficacy numbers than were projected. So why should that affect whether there would be a mandate or not? Because where I'm coming from, uh, this is, yeah, I worked as an EMT as well. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of populations that don't trust medicine. Oh, I we already know I this, and this is this is well known. Um, if we're going to start saying you have to get this, and then we have increasing, uh, you know, cases or side effects, etc., uh, disproportionately among communities of color, and we already are just finding out, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let somebody with a computer, uh, you know, pull up the study, but uh, you know, if we're just finding this out, that's really not going to 
bode well for trying to build uh, a, a rapport and trust in the medical system that facilitates better health outcomes for uh, neglected communities and communities that may already distrust uh, medicine as a standard. Yeah, but let me let me uh, be clear here. Maybe I, I probably wasn't, and so I'm, I'm really glad you called for the first time, Andrew. I'm not suggesting we go from zero to 60 uh, right away, as this legislator, I think her name is Rosenthal in New York State, says, if there's not uh, a sufficient immunity, meaning if people up front take it voluntarily, that's great. And if they're a higher enough percentage taking it voluntarily, that's great. And I assume we reach that point by trusted figures in all of our communities, the Fauci's, uh, religious leaders, uh, sports heroes, politicians, some are trusted, uh, urge people to follow their lead. But if we reach a point where we're not reaching immunity and we continue to live sheltered uh, 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 lives that are destroying our mental health, our families' finances, and whatever, that, to me, is the next step. So I'm actually glad you called. I didn't mean up front, as uh, uh, I think her name is Representative Rosenthal suggests, only if uh, voluntary compliance is not happening. Andrew, thank you very much for your call. So how do you enforce it? How, do you, how does it play out in Jim Browdy's vision? You get a uh, little note. You can't, for example, these kids under the Baker thing with the flu, again, which I totally support. I assume if you don't have a little document that says, I got a flu vaccine, you can't get into school. And yeah. uh, uh, I don't know who would do the checking. But you have supported enforcing mask mandates. Uh, how do you support that? You figure out, let the experts figure something out. And again, this is not step one. Step one is voluntary with lots of leaders urging it. Fauci on television all the time. Barack Obama, Clinton, and W. Bush uh, uh, having their uh, doing publicly. I, sp- I spoke to Joe Cartatoni the other night from Somerville. He and uh, the mayor, Kim Driscoll of Salem, who both of whom used to do our quiz once a year. Obviously, that's been put on hiatus, uh, uh, have talked about doing it publicly to encourage their constituents. So the, I, I don't know how you enforce, but like anything else, you figure it out. I mean, Will I'm you? not saying – let me just be clear. I, I'm, I'm, I'm fine if the government wants to do it. I just don't – I think it would be a lot easier if private businesses did it. I just think it would be a lot easier. Well, can't do you force the, the private the businesses to do it? Wait, do you force the private businesses to do no, it? No, I think it's – I think I, – I mean, I think – how many people sit in, fit in Gillette Stadium? 60,000 60, people, yeah, 50,000 people? You got to have proof of a vaccine before you can come to Gillette Stadium. Okay, I mean, as I you know, that, most of the it, owners of sports teams, most are big time uh, Republicans and supporters of uh, Donald Trump. But I think Trump. not. They not everybody. Not everybody is is out to lunch on this. I mean, I think a lot of people. Still, the majority of people are are are, are want to get this vaccine. Nineteen so percent in New Hampshire, Marjorie said they will definitely get it. That means eighty one. Well, that's nineteen percent. I'm saying in Massachusetts. I think you would get a lot of people that would say, "I'm not going." I'm not going to Gillette if I'm going to be sitting next to someone with no mask on, screaming for two hours, who hasn't been vaccinated. I, I think. I mean, I think there's more people that are concerned about that than are not concerned about it. Maybe you're right. William in Worcester, I don't want to take the chance. Hi. How you doing? Good. Okay. Um, yeah, just get the demographic out of the way. I'm a 60-year-old white man. Mm. Um, I'm also uh, a believer in vaccinations. However, I do have concerns with the current vaccinations um, that are out front, the mRNA ones. Yep. Never been done, never been done before. Correct. Um, I would prefer to wait for the AstraZeneca Oxford, um, you know, the, the, vac- the traditional vaccine before I would commit 
to moving forward with it. William, and, I understand that. You know, and by the way, you're right about the new technology, which is the same technology that both Moderna and Pfizer are using. But if the FDA approves emergency use authorization today, after a pretty rigorous look at this, if the Fauci's and other epidemiologists and public health experts suggest it's okay, you're not willing to, I'm not arguing with you, I'm asking you, or you're not willing to trust them? I'm not saying I'm not willing to trust them, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't get the vaccine, but I would be reluctant to see it mandatory. Okay. Um, I, I would prefer, if you're going to make it mandatory, I would wait until you had firm scientific grounds to stand on. We don't have a time-weighted study for the mRNA, and that's what concerns me. You know, you're, you're, you're introducing... Um, something into the body that's going to manufacture proteins that we don't know what the repercussions of protein manufacturing is. We find out later on about the impacts of proteins on, you know, as far as Alzheimer's, dementia, um, other issues. And again, I'm just, you know, and you put the mRNA in there and, you know, who knows how the body mutates. Whatever, whatever. So I'm. Yeah, just, William. You know, I, that's where my concerns. We I understand that very thoughtful call. Actually, it's just my concern is that if we don't depend on experts whose credibility is not uh, uh, destroyed, unlike Doctor Atlas, for example, who was the chief uh, coronavirus uh, uh, assistant to the president for at least a couple of months, then we're going to be living under these conditions for another year or two. And I, for one. Uh, don't want to do that. But I respect your point of view and I respect your uh, beliefs uh, totally. Thank you for the call. 877-301-8970. Aren't you worried, Mark? I mean, you seem to be much more optimistic than I am. And and by the way, you know who agreed with you? Art Kaplan agreed with you. He thinks once people start getting this and people see uh, that it's happening and see the approval, hopefully today, from the FDA, that there's it's going to be the opposite of hesitancy. There's going to be a rush. If there is yeah. fabulous, then we don't need any mandates. I, I, I'm not willing to. I don't want to live like this. Is I guess my point. I don't want to live like this for another year or two while people are deciding whether or not they want to take a vaccine. I want immunity to happen fast. Donna in Gloucester, you're on Boston Public Radio with Marjorie you're going to meet Jim Bradley. Hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. I'm a hey. fourth time caller. Thanks. I absolutely think you two are a gift to radio. Ooh. And if- oh, thank you. Honest to goodness, I just, I think you are the best. Thanks. The best of the best. Thanks. What's up? Um, I'm with you, Jim. I have to say, if people just thought for a second, 3,000 people in a day, 280,000 plus in a matter of months. I mean, this isn't rocket science. If there is something out there and the Fauci's and the epidemiologists and the FDA are saying this is a go... I say mandate, go for it. I mean, for crying out loud, you need a driver's license to drive a car. Um, People can go buy a rifle if they want to. Uh, We need to get a grip on this. I'm a small business owner. I know loads of friends have gone out of business. I know people who have suffered with this virus physically and mentally. Um, To me, this is a no-brainer. These people have been working around the clock to come up with a vaccine. They're telling us something is here. It's on the horizon. 
And if we get somebody like the wonderful Dr. Fauci and wonderful people who've been struggling to make this happen and all these healthcare workers that are putting themselves on the line yeah. for us, I say, yippee Kaye, mandate this all the way. Donna, thanks. And Donna, we got to go, but thank you. Uh, great call. Well, obviously, it's great because they're agreeing with me, but I, it was great anyway. Thank you for your Okay. Call. We're talking about the vaccine and asking if it should be mandatory. Would that backfire? Could it be one way to slow down the surge? We're going to keep talking about this at 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She's Marjorie. And if you're tuning in, there's really actually great news. We're talking about the vaccine with an FDA advisory panel meeting today. And uh, virtually every expert says they are, are going to approve emergency use authorization. And in a matter of days, the vaccine is going to be in the hands of people in all of our states. Uh, that's a big deal. But we're taking your calls asking you, could mandating it be the fastest way to slow down the surge? Or as Marjorie suggested before we broke, could it backfire by exacerbating mistrust among people who are already hesitant to take it? Uh, I, I, again, my position is give it some time, see if people voluntarily do what Marjorie thinks they're going to do, uh, which is get it, want to get it. And uh, if it turns out that people fail to do it voluntarily, then I think our governments need to step in and make sure that we are all vaccinated. Well, you know, there's this other idea that uh, coronavirus is not that big of a deal. You know, unless you're like 90 years old or you're severely compromised, because you see these cases like Rudy Giuliani or like the President of the United States that, that are older men with um, some health issues and they recover so quickly. But I think people forget that they get all these fancy-dancy treatments that most of us are not going to be able to get because they don't have enough of them, that that monoclonal antibody cocktail, whatever it was. Uh, Giuliani uh, and Chris Christie, those people who are tied the president, the president himself. I don't begrudge it to the president because he is the president. But but that's not something that's going to be available to everybody. So it was available to Herman Cain, Marjorie. Yeah, and it was available to Ben Carson. Well, Ben, Car- um, I don't I, think was ben, it was it Herman Ben Carson. Cain? Herman Cain is the uh, person who died. Uh, uh, yes, at, who was at the Trump rally in uh, Tulsa? He was a high ender. He was wealthy. He was very close to the president. I'm sure he got the best care one can get. Uh, people I don't who know think about this him. I know. I don't know about whether he got it or not. I do know that Ben Carson most definitely did, and he said that he was in very bad shape uh, when he eventually um, got it, and then he got this cocktail and turned things around for them. So it's not like some joke. That I think that um, that uh, some people do think it is. Anyway, eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy is the phone number, Jim. Can you do the phones because my phone oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. Working. Gina and Bill Ricker, you're on with uh, well, two of us on Boston Public Radio. Hi there. Hi. Hi. First time caller. Thank you. Um, my concern is I, I'm not I'm not in a rush to get this vaccine. It's not that I don't trust it. I just don't trust the long term effects. Mm. I've seen too many medications on television. You hear about them. They're the next latest and greatest, only to find out that there's a huge recall on them and a class action suit because we don't know the true long-term effects. Well, let me, uh, uh, Gina, Gina, do you think that the people meeting today or experts are basically saying to each other, Hey, let the Gina, can I finish a sentence, please? Gina, do you think their attitude is 
let long-term effects be damned? We don't care about them. Let's just get this thing out to the states. No, I think they're they're scientifically basing it on the information they have on hand, and they mm-hmm. truly don't know. So you're not going to well, get so- it. Is that what you're saying, Gina? <laughs> not right away. Okay. Not right away. But I would you be willing? What? But would you be willing during that time to kind of keep self-isolating so you wouldn't be risking infecting other people? I mean, if you're willing, if you don't want to get the vaccine for a while and you're willing to stay home and not, you know, go to bars, go to restaurants, go, you know, I mean, that's Wait, Marjorie, Gina said long-term effects. Are you willing to quarantine Mm -hmm. for a couple of years while you figure out the long-term? I'm serious. Long-term doesn't mean a month. I hope it's going to be sooner than that. You mean long-term, you mean down the line in a year or two, right, Gina? Again, I want to watch it day by day. Do we know how long this vaccine works for? Are we going to need a booster in five years? We probably will, or less. We may. We may. Gina, thank you for your call. By the way, you're part of the 47% in Massachusetts in the Mass Inc. poll who said they want to wait a while. That's practically majority. That's half, obviously, of the people who are exactly where you are. The question is how long you're willing to to wait and how long are we as a society willing to let the genus of the world await that's what makes me nervous 47 percent of the people in our state are gina who say i want to wait and see and while they're waiting and seeing marjorie we're not going to reach the level of immunity that allows life to return to semi-normalcy that i, I that's troubling to me well, I think a lot. I'm just reading the email, and there seems to be a, 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 a several people who believe that the real push is going to be to, to get the vaccine. People are going to be really um, anxious to get the vaccine, at least in some cases. And you know, I, 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 I um, you also think if people are going to be um, upset with the rules set up, you know, teachers aren't going to be in the first phase. Maybe they should be in the first phase, since we talk incessantly about how important it is to be back in the schools. Maybe they should be right up there with the uh, hospital workers as well. 877-301-8970. Next call. Oh, I'm sorry. I keep forgetting you have a call screen issue. Uh, let's go to Rhode Island, where Marilyn is on the phone. Marilyn, thanks for calling. Hi. Hi, guys. How are you? We're good. Um, I'm calling because actually I was talked off the ledge as far as getting the vaccine after listening to Fauci and Sanjay Gupta and, of course, our own Rhode Island, um, Dr. Ja and Megan Rainey. I figured, okay, if they're saying it's safe, it's safe. And then this week we find out in the U.K. that people have had reactions to have allergies. And I happen to be allergic to penicillin sulfa and morphine. So now I'm wondering why don't these powers that be say, why aren't they transparent about this? And you know that there are people who are willing to take it, but after the fact, we're finding out that you can have a reaction to it more than just the normal reaction that you would get from a flu shot or any other kind of inoculation. So I think this after the fact kind of event is only going to increase people's skepticism as far as the safety and the repercussions And I realized it was only two out of all the people who took the vaccine. But for those two, it was significant. But Marilyn, Marilyn, they they caught it and they said that those two had prior significant allergic reaction problems. And I believe that the Pfizer people and the UK regulators said immediately after that, if you do have severe 
allergic reactions or have a history of them, then at least for now, you shouldn't take the uh, Pfizer vaccine. But I, I mean, I hear it, Marilyn, thanks. I hear the hesitancy and obviously there's a lot of it, but that's what makes me nervous, uh, Marjorie. Yeah, we may not get it as fast as we think either. I'm a little worried oh, right. listening to these stories from the right. public health people saying they don't have the money, they don't have the technology, that they're not going to be able to get this out as fast as we think they can. Um, so that's very upsetting too. Anyway, uh, up next, we are going to be talking about... Um, whoops, a more fun aspect here. of this. Yes. What would you really want to go to first thing when this mess is over? A restaurant, a bar, a concert? Fly to Europe. Tell us about your post-pandemic plans up next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Ahead on Boston Public Radio with a COVID-19 vaccine rollout imminent in America, starting to feel like we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Are you already fantasizing about what life will be like and what your first return to normal activity will be? I am. We'll open the lines to hear from you about what you're missing and what you can't wait to get back once the vaccine is here for all of us. The state legislature's police reform bill awaits action from Governor Charlie Baker, who has the power to approve, veto, or send back to the legislature with amendments. He said one provision restricting the use of facial recognition technology was something he needed to chew on for a bit. Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins has penned a letter to him advocating the passage of the bill with no amendments, citing the racial discrimination of facial recognition technology. She'll join us to take our questions about the police reform bill and your calls. That's ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GP. He's Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to our number two of Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Hello, Jim. Before we move to something, Marjorie, it's a little bit more fun because you and I are both sort of doom and gloomed out for today. Uh, uh, I wanted to do a, a, just a news update and, and raise a concern. The news update, I don't think Henry mentioned this, Henry Santoro. Uh, the SJC, the state's highest court, has just determined uh, that uh, the exercise of emergency authority by the governor around this COVID stuff is constitutionally permissible, which I think is a really good and important thing. Congratulations to them. But I, I was also thinking about some of the calls, the vaccine-hesitant people we got in the first hour. Yep. Yep. I don't want to continue with this, but I just want to comment. I am hoping that when Biden takes over on January 20th, despite this attempted coup, I was just reading Trump's tweets from this morning, which are disgraceful, every single one of them disgraceful, uh, um, uh, stolen elections, that sort of thing. I hope he returns to his coronavirus task force doing what Trump's used to do, assuming they'll be honest, as opposed to Trump's people, with the exception of Fauci and another one or two, and every afternoon uh, be out there and talk and answer questions. We had people calling in the first hour worried about the allergic reactions of those two uh, vaccine recipients in the UK. They should address those kinds of things, the long-term effects. Another caller, we need experts who are trusted every day to relentlessly be in our face until this thing is under control. And I hope Joe Biden does that with the most authoritative people, including Dr. Fauci, who is going to be well, you know, to him as soon as possible. Atul Gawande from oh, the Brigham. Of course. Um, well, he's on he's, his he's, COVID he's, committee. Yeah. So, I mean, he's got, he's got great people. You know, you just have a feeling when you look at the Biden people that, I mean, President Trump had trouble hiring competent people because a lot of them suffered very 
serious damage their reputations. Uh, you feel like the A team is kind of back. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not a desperation hire because you can't get anybody. Speaking <laughs> of the A team, by the way, uh, congratulations to Dan Rivera, who I think is great. Lawrence Mayer obviously yep. has a new job, uh, uh, at least will have a new job. Uh, uh, Henry just mentioned that. Number two, Deval Patrick appears to be among the finalists, according to Washington Post yeah. and CNN amongst three or four people to be the next Attorney General of uh, the United States. In any case, as I said, enough doom and gloom, at least for the moment. With the U.S. government on the verge of approving a vaccine for emergency use, that should happen today. The U.K. already administering it. Are you ready to start thinking uh, that we're entering the beginning of the end, if we're all careful? Are you already entertaining what the first thing is that you'll do when society opens up again? What's the first thing you want to do? Do you want to travel, go to a neighborhood pub, a concert? How about just being able to hang out at a library? I can't wait till we can go back to the library and do a broadcast. I know. Or putting your kid on a school bus knowing that remote learning is behind you. 877-301-8970. Again, we know there's a long, long, painful, scary road ahead. But if we're all responsible and if these vaccines are produced quickly and distributed quickly, we will reach that point. So we're going to jump the horror for the next few minutes and talk about what do you think. So what have you thought? I've thought a lot about this. Have you thought about it? And if you have, what is it among the first things you want to do? Um, Well, just be able to go out without my mask on will be a big deal because no one has figured out how to make a mask, at least as far as I know, where your glasses or your sunglasses don't (laughs) fog up. So you can't see where you're going. Okay. The damn mask. That's That's going to be great. And be able to smile at people. And even though I was not someone who spent a lot of time sitting at bars, um, I, just the closeness of sitting at a bar. Yeah. You know, you used to kind of hate I it. You'd go that. in, there was no place to sit in the bar. You'd just stand up in the bar. And you, but I, I would just want to go out and sit at a bar with a big television on and have something to drink and something to eat and be all crowded in like I used to be before. That's what I miss. Which That's is, pretty good, actually. I don't know. Yeah. That's pretty good. You know, good. you could see the Celtics game or the... Patriots game, whatever it was, get a cheeseburger. Watch Greater Boston if you go to a bar at 7 o'clock at night, which you is could watch really Greater fun Boston. while you're getting drunk. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been in a bar that was watching Greater Boston. Well, most of them don't have it on. I don't understand it because it's really, it's the kind of thing you'd think that people <laughs> at a bar would, would want to be cheering for and, you know, booing sometimes, but they, they haven't caught up. 877 Well, one is not going to surprise you because you know how much I like food. I want to be able to go to all my favorite restaurants like seven nights in in a row, uh, eat inside if it's cold. Eat, I love the outside. By the way, uh, after I know you spoke to Mayor Walsh the other day and you asked him, on the day I was off, you asked him, uh, uh, why are you discontinuing the outdoor dining on public spaces? And he said, it just logistically can't happen. Well, he apparently just announced this morning, come April or as soon as the weather turns, he's going to reinstitute all those outdoor dining policies, which is good. So that's one. And two, you may find this weird because, you know, I don't like doing things with other people. As you know, I'm not <laughs> the most sociable thing. But, you know, Rick Steves has been a partner on our show now once a month for, I don't know, six, seven oh. months. I want to oh. go on a Rick on Steves, a Rick Steves tour of Europe if he's part of it. And I'm assuming that the early ones, he himself will go. And can you imagine seeing any part of Europe with Rick Steves himself? I mean, talk about a dream. That would be just I saw him on our station last night during the fundraiser. He was fantastic. And you, yeah. just, you just thought to yourself, um, because he emphasizes the 
get off the beaten path, you know, don't spend all your time at Versailles, try to find out the little out of the way, uh, little That's what he's so great at, these, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, um, you know, I, I have no idea whether the out-of-the-way little restaurants are. So it would be great to go with someone that could guide you around to those places. He's just an uplifting person. You know what? Him. Just back to a yeah. second. How much fun is it going to be for us professionally the day we can go back to the Boston Public Library in Copley Square? We go to the Newsfeed Cafe, order our food as we're preparing friends and people who like what we do come and watch it. We get to talk to them. With them, all that's I mean, just out in the world, see people walking by outside the window. I mean, it's not right around the corner. We're not turning the bend, uh, as uh, Trump likes to say, even though a vaccine authorization is a very important step, assuming it happens today. But it's it's just, it, Rick Steves calls it travel dreaming. I'm, I'm I guess we can call this post vaccine dreaming about what you're going to do to sort of celebrate the return to normalcy. And hopefully we're all responsible enough in the intervening uh, months that we don't lose uh, neighbors, people we care about and all that sort of stuff. So 877-301-8970. We're going to try not to bring you down for the next few minutes. And we'll return to bringing you down pretty soon. Heather and Lincoln, you're <laughs> first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling in. Hi. Hi, hi, Jim and Marjorie. Love you guys both. I, I have to say the one good thing about the pandemic is that I have been fortunate enough that I've been able to work from home and listen to BPR every day. So oh, my that's, God. Uh, oh, that's, that's great. That's fantastic. It's been the highlight of my work day. But so the one nice. thing that I'm really... Yeah. <laughs> I love the show. The Thanks. one thing I'm really... I don't know. It just creeped up on me just recently. I'm dying to go to a movie theater. <laughs> just sit down in the dark, not worry about any germs, get a huge bucket of popcorn, <laughs> and just enjoy. And I will be one of those first people in line for the vaccine. And then right after that, I want to get on a plane. I was planning a trip for myself to Bermuda for my birthday last year, and my birthday's in June. And COVID hit, and I was waiting, waiting, waiting before I booked anything. I didn't end up booking anything, so I will be getting on a plane. And then the other thing I just wanted to say, too, I mean, I just, I'll be walking around with a mask on, even after I get the vaccine. I don't yeah. know why. I feel like taking the mask off will be so hard. Um, you know, so I will be walking. And not only that, I wonder if, you know, if, if, if you will be walking around and you will be seeing people wearing masks and people not wearing masks, and what that will say and, and how that might be politicized. I got the vaccine. I didn't get the vaccine. I, I'm not quite sure about that. Um, but one thing I just wanted to add to about kind of... Um, you know, incentivizing the vaccine and, and getting people, you know, kind of this hearts and minds cap, uh, campaign to get people to actually mm -hmm. get on board with getting the vaccine. I mean, like, for example, what if airlines were to offer a discount on a flight if you prove that you have the vaccine? I love that. Um, well, they shouldn't let you on at all if you haven't yeah, had the vaccine, yeah, probably. God, if but, airplanes don't let you on, right. I, I mean, I mean, without proof, I, I don't know. I'll never be on You know airplane. what I love, Heather? I was hoping someone like you would be the first caller because I wanted someone who didn't just start thinking about what they're going to do the second we brought it up, but you've obviously spent time thinking about, I don't even like movie theaters, but I could totally get into that after, you know, because you can't and no one wants to be told you can't not do anything. The one thing I want to say though, I want to uh, uh, respond to your thing about masks. We talked to Art Kaplan about this yesterday, a medical ethicist. People are going to be advised to wear a mask for a while because as he said, while we have pretty firm evidence that the vaccine will provide uh, some immunity, we don't have evidence that it will prevent transmission. And so until a lot of people get the vaccine, uh, whether it's 60, 70 percent, whatever the appropriate threshold is, 
I think we're going to be advised to wear masks even if we have been vaccinated. Heather, that was a great call, and thanks for the kind words that made us feel good. 877-301-8970. Now, Cindy just emailed to tell me that what I should do about the fogging situation is fold a tissue into a small rectangle and place it on top of the mask on the bridge of your nose area. Wow. The tissue absorbs the moisture, no more glass fog. She says her whole family does it. And it solves the problem. So I can't wait till I go out later this afternoon walking. And I will try that out. And here's what Cassie is looking forward to. She says, I have two lovely small children, a five-year-old son and a two-year-old. They're the light of my life. The first thing I'm going to do is dump them at my parents' house and peel out of the driveway (laughs) as fast as possible. (laughs) I knew that was... uh, Oh, Cassie, that's great. But by the way, the thing I read in the beginning, don't you think being able to put your kid, if you have young kids, which we don't, putting kids back on a school bus knowing they're safe and they can actually see their friends and all that. You 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 mentioned the thing, which is, talk about mundane, which I loved when you said a minute ago, you know, see people's whole faces. I've done things, and I'm sure you, I know you have too, during uh, the pandemic. With, I did something last night with Keith Lockhart at, uh, 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 remotely. He was on stage at the BS, at the uh, at Symphony Hall, and I was in my daughter's bedroom. We did a little Q&A oh, for did? people who were at Great. company night for uh, Boston Holiday. Uh, uh, Pops, why did I bring that up? What were we talking about? Why talking, we, oh, oh because I worked with some people in preparation for that who I hadn't met before. And now it's over, and it was great. I never saw what they looked like. I never saw what their smile was like. And you're right. that It's a huge loss. So something as mundane as seeing a whole face is going to be something that will be wonderful to return to. Okay, we're talking about life after COVID. Are you imagining what it will be like and what you want to do? That conversation continues on 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie. And we decided to do something a little hopeful, or at least future hopeful-oriented for a change. Uh, We're saying that with the UK already vaccinating people, and the US on the verge of getting doses out there too, which could be any day, assuming things go as planned at the FDA today, are you ready to climb down from the state of, I don't know, suspended animation that this pandemic has put us in? Are you having post pandemic fantasies fantasies you can share with us i should make clear whether they're grandiose or utterly mundane we'd like to hear what they are 877-301-8970 i i know almost everybody i know i've had this discussion with obviously off the air and almost everybody has done their fantasy planning because i think people really are hoping that we get to the other side sooner rather than later we we were talking to David Burns, Talking Heads, uh, about his American Utopia, the the book, and Fabulous. his um, the TV show that was about. I think it was on H- was it on HBO. I think it was on HBO. What was the play? Spike Lee filmed it and uh, right. did a great film out of anyway, it. Anyway, yeah. I remember, I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, or whenever it was, going to see him actually perform live, yeah. and it was such a great night because everybody was in their was in their uh, seats. I think it was at the Emerson Majestic, and, and everybody was in their seats. And then, you know, halfway through, everybody's standing up, and they're dancing up and down the aisles, and they're dancing in front great. of the stage. It was such a wild night. So many people are uh, emailing about live music, and that's a big that's a great thing point. that they really miss, being in a big crowd of people and just dancing yeah, around, having big. a blast. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Can you take the call, Jim? Yes, I can. Arthur, you're in a car. You're on with Marjorie Egan and me, Jim Browdy. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. 
Oh, my pleasure. Great to talk to you guys. Um, Thanks. Yeah, they asked. Uh, my, our wish list would be, uh, top of the wish list is going to New York City. We've, for the past 20 plus years, we've gone to New York City for a few days before Christmas. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the, um, the people at the restaurants and the hotels have become like family to us. We're the guys mm. that, uh, you know, when I've checked in with places to see if they're still employed and, and all that. And we miss, we miss that quite a bit. Um, so that's one thing we would like to, uh, you know, Arthur, you know, why I'm so glad you did that. I, I, I used to live in New York. I lived there for 15 years and I, I don't know, every uh, three or four Christmases, maybe we all go down there and, Often the crowds drive me nuts, but now I crave the crowds. You, <laughs> me you know, too. <laughs> it's sort of like you really even that which annoyed you, annoyed me, is something I can't wait to experience again. So that's a that's a great one. That's a great one. And to see the faces and always staying at the same hotel to see them again. Hopefully they're there to be seen again. And all that's a good one, Arthur. Thanks for uh, suggesting it. 877-301-8970. And you said a lot of people are emailing live music. You know, not even live music for me in a huge... I love small venues. I, I just love small music venues. A little packed in, you know, maybe 400, 500 people yeah. kind of thing. I mean, how great, great would that be? Listen to this. Uh, this is from uh, uh, Madeline. She says, I will dance the tango. My formerly <laughs> obsessive hobby has been taken away from me since oh, March. Man. I'm dying to be in the tango embrace. That is great. Wow. That there is you go. great. That's a good one. Okay. Hey, can you see me doing the tango, by the way? I think no, that'd I be cannot. something I, to I, see. I, I, <laughs> Look out below, I think, is what the uh, message would be. A lot of people, too. Visiting their grandkids or their children or their siblings, people that they haven't been able to see because of their um, health conditions. You know, they just have health conditions that can't you know, but the travel. It's, it's, you know, talk about mundane but unbelievably important. I, 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 both on radio but particularly on TV, I've spoken to people in the last week or two who in the midst of our conversations have said things like, uh, you know, been, Dr. Vanessa Curry was on the other night who has uh, been doing incredible work both around the world and here on things like COVID, said she hadn't seen her father in months yeah, and months. I heard hadn't you seen say her that. in-laws in more than a year. And that's not aber- not even seen them. Forget, you know, distance seeing them. So those kinds of things. And, you know, so many older people who haven't seen their grandkids or their kids. And, you know, just those kind of things are going to be just luxurious for people. You know, here's a, a mom who um, adopted a daughter, and she talks about how she sends uh, pictures every year to the to the birth family. And she was going through the photos for for 2020 for the update, and of course, and realized that almost every single picture of doing something fun outside the house, everybody's got a mask on. Yeah. And you know, it's the emotional impact of seeing all these masked pictures of my toddler just kind of um, hit her over the head. And somebody who's a friend of mine has got a small baby. It's just about a year old now. I said, "How weird is it that these babies have spent their earliest months? That's great. Seeing everybody masks. You know, at home they're not masked, but when they go to the supermarket, when they go to wherever they go, they go to the park. um, They think that people only have half a face. I guess." You know, what do you think when you're six months old? You think maybe only my mom and dad have a, have, That's have a, a really mouth. That's a good one. Everybody else got this big thing over their face. Alan in Fort Lauderdale, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome, Alan. Hi. Hey, thank you. Um, yeah, you guys make me sentimental for all the things I missed this year. 
types of things. Yeah. I, you know, I did the American Utopia and uh, a lot of concerts last year. We're looking forward, right now I was going to cruise to um, see the eclipse this weekend via Antarctica. It's a 21-day oh. cruise, and I'm supposed to be on the cruise right now. And oh. It's a total eclipse that was in Argentina. Um, <laughs> stuff. I think we've already booked another trip to uh, to the Holy Land for next fall. Wow. Already booked over. <laughs> we're going to get the vaccine. We're going to get over there. And before that, as soon as we get vaccinated, we're going to go see our son in Astoria, Oregon. He moved out there with his wife uh, last year. We visited them then and have not seen them for 18 months. Wow. Yeah, healthcare professionals, even if we showed up at the house, they don't want us to come in. <laughs> so it's, we're really looking forward to getting out there, going to concerts, Tanglewood again, live yeah, concerts. Tanglewood, so yeah. I retired last year. We've been doing everything and suddenly going a million miles an hour and then screeching halt. Uh, so, uh, Boy, I'll tell you. I traveled today for the first time. I'm down here in Fort Lauderdale. I'm from Massachusetts. I have not traveled since March, but uh, I had to come down this week. Uh, for a very short time, and even that was a little weird coming out of the I house. Bet it was. Did it? Um, we just look forward to getting vaccinated. Everybody on the call who can hear this, you know, get vaccinated. I'm with you, Alan. Alan, we have bad connections. We got to let you go, but thank you. There's another guy. I mean, that in and of itself, it seems to me, helps get you through doing that kind of serious planning. The kind of planning you and I are talking about is not that big a deal. I mean, going yeah. to a restaurant, whatever, you sort of decide on the spot. But did you hear what he and his, I don't know, family members or whatever, you know, what did he say, a cruise? To, the whole, there was supposed to be a cruise, I think, to, to Antarctica? the Arctic this, this week. This was on it right now. And then he's planning on a church of the Holy Land after this is all over next Jeez. fall. Andrew's got one that's much simpler. But I can, I can relate to this, even though I don't play what pool. He wants to play pool. Yeah. He's in all these amateur pool leagues, and they've been a whole since March. And um, that's another good one. You know, just this kind of stuff you used to do with your friends on a Friday night or Saturday night, something like that. Go to the local, uh, uh, wherever you, pool hall. That's done, right? Yeah, I spent a lot of time at pool halls, as you <laughs> probably know, pre-pandemic. <laughs> so I... Uh... Well, a lot of people's... You know, I wonder, you know, other things like curling. You know, we talked about during the Olympics that people, there was a spike in curling around the country because people saw the Olympian team do so well in the curling thing. All those kind of sporting things that you do... Um, can you do them? I don't know. You, be far, you can play golf, I guess, because you're far apart. But other sports, it's really hard to do unless you're like a you know, professional sports person. Here's a good one, Marjorie. A friend of ours texted yeah. from Urban Improv Band in Boston, which mm-hmm. obviously was brief and virtual this year, hopefully return next year. She says, my light at the end of the tunnel is to sit at a piano surrounded by children, hearing them singing their hearts out. That's a pretty uh. good one. Too, isn't it? That really is a good one. 877-301-897. This is lifting my spirits a bit, by the way. My spirits are rarely lifted. Are you planning uh, a trip? Well, no, planning in anything. I mean, thinking about what you can do that you can't. Uh, and as I said to that woman who wants to go to a movie theater, even things that I didn't like before I want to do now because I'm prohibited from doing them, and I, I don't like that, so I, it feels good. So we're still talking about this, Correct. I believe that is correct, Marjorie. That is correct. I'm just a little confused today because of Pledge. We're going to keep talking about this up next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And Marjorie and I and our colleagues decided we all needed a lift today. So we decided to spend most of this hour talking to you about life after covid 
asking what is the first thing or the first things you want to do when society reopens. We want to stay for the rest of this hour on Upbeat Moves. We can expand this, too. In addition to your first things, we really want to hear that. If you have positive stories to tell about people helping people in the middle of this thing, anything that can help lift spirits that have been seriously taxed by the pain and length of time that we've been living in this nightmare, please give us a buzz, 877-301-8970. Maria, you're in Peabody. You're on Boston Public Radio with us. Hi. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. How are you? Fine, thanks. Good, good. Uh, So um, quickly, the most positive thing that I think that's happened is that we have a new president coming in January 2021. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that positive thing. Wait a second. I just but, read that and, the other guy won, though. So you sure of that or not? What other joke. guy? <laughs> that was a joke, Maria. Go ahead. Continue. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. I just read Trump's uh, no. Twitter feed, and he said repeatedly this morning that he won the election. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I am definitely going to step up quickly, get the vaccine as soon as it becomes available, and then I'm going to get dressed up. I'm going to put on makeup, which I haven't worn in a 10 months, and I'm going to go to the concert where Ain't Too Proud is supposed to be coming to Boston. Well, you've got your plans too, Maria. Thank you much for the call. You know, it is interesting. If you, I'm sure you've been following this news. Things like makeup, uh, ties, suits, gone right in the toilet. Those businesses, because nobody's gone out and doing those kinds I know. of things. It's like sweatpants nation, you know what I mean? There was some guy today who was in the... It, Office furniture business. Needless to say, his business That's is kind of like point. you know taking a total a total slide. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. We're talking about your post COVID fantasies, Jim. Oh, sorry, I keep forgetting. Linny in Seekonk. Uh, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. How are you? Second We're good. caller. You've well, been my you. lifeline through this whole thing. Oh, thank so, you. It's so nice to hear. Uh, Going to get vaccinated as soon as I can. And head to the karaoke bar where all my friends are. (laughs) (laughs) And it took me out. This thing, I I just had gotten into it before this COVID thing. And, uh, you know, I made friends, got out of my shyness. It was great. Then I'm going to go to Norway and with my boyfriend and try to find a karaoke bar in Norway. (laughs) Why? Wait, why? Why Norway? Because I always wanted to go to Norway. Yeah, me too, actually. Best of all best of both worlds, you know, but this karaoke thing, I miss my friends there, um, real great social thing, I miss so much, and um, and I just, uh, yeah, but Lenny, what's your first. what's your go-to uh, karaoke song? Um, my, is, uh, my go-to karaoke song is um, by John Prine, and uh, uh, it's called In, In Spite of Ourselves. Because that's the first song I sang with the boyfriend and my fiance right wow. now. He told oh. me how to sing. I did you not know, know how to sing at all. <laughs> and it you was know, Lenny, really since John Prine singing. died a few months ago, uh, I've been listening to him a lot. And for He's those great. who are either new to him or not as John Prined up as they should have been when he was alive, he was a brilliant, brilliant songwriter. And uh, that's a great choice. And. Lenny, good luck. We hope you have karaoke soon. You do. By the way, I would rather be shot on Fifth Avenue by Donald Trump than do karaoke. That's not exactly my kind of thing. I know people love it, yeah. really, really love it. Do, have you ever done that? I have not done it. No, yeah. I've not done it. 
I, I, that's too much for me. But is I, it really I too much for you? Just being yeah. nice to me. I, I think I'd do it in a group if there were like three or four of us or something like that. But just by yourself make me too nervous. Um, but but I think a lot of people really do love it. Um, you know, our from West Bridgewater makes a great point about just the what normal things. Well, he hadn't really thought about it, but he's until we brought it up to him, he said, do almost anything. Just go out and get a yeah, beer. Right. Go out he's and right. get a sandwich. Just meet up with some people without having to plan it ahead or make a reservation. You know, just just go someplace. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, you're thinking about how... You used to, if you were having a business meeting or making a new acquaintance or whatever, you'd say, okay, I'll meet you for a cup of coffee. We'll go have a cup of coffee somewhere. And now, of course, you can't do that. You, you, all those things that you used to just or spontaneously say, hey, I don't feel like cooking tonight. Let's go out and get a sandwich. You know what I mean? It's all, it's just all gone. You know, but the, you know what is a great word in Art's email is the planning thing. Is that when you yeah. do do anything now, you have to plan it. Yeah. every single piece of it. It's got to be planned. You know, who you can see, if you I mean, everybody knows. Whatever, every aspect to stay safe and keep other people safe. The notion that you can just do it. That's really a wonderful point, actually. I hadn't thought about it, but that is totally true. The number is 877-301-8970. I hope I get this name right. Is it Sko in Roslindale? Did I get that right, Sko? Yes, uh, yes, it is. Hi, Sko. Uh, What's up? Um, uh, first off, I'd like to tell you about the letter I just got from Jack Callahan for my, uh, donation to WGBH. Okay. Yep. I think it's a great, great class. Um, um, I miss, and I can't wait to get back to giving pre-public tours at the Arnold Arboretum. I, uh, really miss it, and, um, I can't wait till all this is over. Oh, my goodness. Do we meet you at the library? Are you the gentleman oh, yeah. we met at the library? Yes. Oh, yes. I met you, and you you always enti- – I never made it down there, but 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 um, that's a great point. Just be able to tell people close up what, what to see in the Arboretum. That's a good one. Yeah. Let's go, thank really you. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Over the, uh, I brought over the Santa Claus. What can I do for you, Santa Claus? Yep. Last Christmas. Yes. That's that right. One? We do. Yep. We do. Well, yep. It's uh, I'm a I'm a dedicated listener. Thank you for having. Well, thank you. So you're thank a kind you very soul. Much. Thank you. You know what I want to say? By the way, you're going to be shocked because not only am I not an outdoors person. I guess mm-hmm. walking is not exactly considered an outdoors person, but I'm yes, not. Yes, it is. Yes, but it you is. know what I've done? What almost every other weekend? You sitting down, going to the Arnold Arboretum, and and they're a decent. I know. I know. You can't see Marjorie's face. I see her on Zoom. She's ready to fall you off her chair. I've gone to the Arnold Arboretum every yeah. other weekend during the pandemic. Taking walks, that sort of stuff. Seeing people because you can do a distance. It's beautiful. It is so God. unlike me, uh, as you well know. It is unbelievable. Yeah. That well, that I've done that many times, and it's it beautiful. is really, it is really neat. Yeah, and you can do that because you can socially distance, just walk around for an hour. It's great. Wow, it's getting a little cold, Jim. What's that? getting a little cold it is but you know i i, I never I, my whole life i was never even though i intellectually of course knew that if you put on layers you'll be fine mm-hmm. i hate cold weather so much that i was never willing to do it but now i realize if you want to not be in the house 24 7 right. which yeah. pretty much is what life is like you actually have to put on a layer or two so i've done it i've braved the wilds of the arnold arboretum <laughs> and uh uh uh, I have, and it is, it is... I'm very impressed. I mean, I knew it was a beautiful place, but particularly in these times when you need a release, it's really, really a great Well, you know what they say. No, I don't. There's no bad weather, only bad clothing, Jim, or something oh, like that. Oh, that is... 
is really Isn't, something. Yeah, kind of, kind of nice. Okay, for a few more minutes, we're talking about this, what your post-COVID fantasies are. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're behaving uh, in a counterintuitive way for us. We have focused far too much, we decided, on the doom and gloom and the pain that is real that everybody's experiencing. So we decided to spend most of this hour, just a couple of more minutes, asking you if you've begun to think, particularly with this being, hopefully, Emergency Use Authorization Approval Day at the FDA. We'll find, we may even find out before the show's over, but we should find out today. And if there is approval, almost immediate distribution of the first round of Pfizer vaccines, maybe Moderna as soon as next week, assuming they get uh, authorization quickly as well. We thought we could actually be thinking about the future with you, and a lot of you seemingly have begun planning for what you do in a post-COVID, or at least post-the-worst-of-COVID world. So we're taking your calls at 877-301-8970, anything else that is upbeat, no down doom and gloom stuff for at least the next five or six minutes and then we can do that and by the way we'll be joined at the uh, top of the hour right for the top of the hour by rachel rollins for an hour suffolk county da to take your calls and questions for her lots of people are emailing about dinners just having people over for dinner yeah. whether they're big family dinners or just smaller dinner one. parties lots of people are uh emailing about concerts uh, caitlin says she's a, a concert junkie she wants to go to the shows that were canceled this year lady gaga was supposed to be at fenway park Hell, a mega tour at Fenway Park, Green Day, Weezer, and Fallout Boy. Oh, I didn't even know that. And My Chemical Romance at the Garden. Those are all canceled this year, and she's hoping to go back to those when you can get a vaccine and feel safe to go out. 877-301-8970. Live music is a huge, is a huge, huge. missing thing, even though there's been some fabulous virtual uh, uh, stuff on. Sarah in Cape Cod somewhere. You're on Boston Public Radio. Thanks, Sarah. Hi there. How are Hi. you? Good. Uh, I am calling. My son is in a bagpipe band on the Cape. He's um, nine years old, and he's a drummer. And since um, just after the Harpoon Fest in March, that was our last gig, and we haven't done one since. Uh. So we're looking forward to um, getting back to some parades. And we've already gotten word that, the, unfortunately, the St. Patrick's Day Parade in March is already canceled for 2021. So... Hopefully by summer we're back in some parades as a bagpipe band. I love that he's in a bagpipe band. That is yeah. really that is a really he's good a one. Drummer. What's that? He's a he's a snare drummer in the yeah, I heard bagpipe you. band. That's that's yeah. fabulous. So before you go, what kind of places in normal times do they play? Um, we have done the um, a lot of Christmas parades and Fourth of July parades on the Cape. We do the Harpoon Fest. Um, in Boston, we do the Woburn Chris, uh, Halloween Parade, St. Patrick's Day Parade, Situate, um, a lot of a lot of both on Cape and off Cape gigs. That's great. That's really something to look forward to. Good luck to your kid and to you, Sarah. Thank you much for the call. I appreciate it. This is from Pawan. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. He's listed seven things, or she's listed seven things. Oh, good. Post COVID, number one, not think about the president. Number two. <laughs> 
play basketball with other human beings. Number three, not think about the president. Number four, get back into the office with my deeply missed coworkers. Number five, not think about the president. Number six, get back into races, 5Ks and half marathons. And number seven, not think about the president. You know, I, I, I'm assume, with you there. I assume that person means not think about this president. But as you've said repeatedly, there's going to come a time we're not going to have to think about the new president. It's not Joe Biden is not going to be part of our consciousness 24-7, no, as, unlike Donald Trump before him, which is really incredible that you can go days, particularly once this COVID thing is dealt with, where you probably won't hear about well, Joe Biden you know, or Kamala Harris. Especially the climate change Trump stuff with Trump. I just don't get it. I mean, every day it's like he's trying to undermine another regulation to keep the mm. water clean and the air clean. He just did it again today. And luckily it's going to be one that uh, probably it's not going to matter because Joe Biden can turn it around. But he just seems to can't wait to to uh, pollute those rivers and, and make that air dirtier and send all that coal pollution into people's lungs. I mean, he's really got a, he's got a thing about just let's just go back to, I remember when I first worked at the Herald a million years ago and people still smoke in the office and you walk in and there'd be like this cloud of cigar smoke, you know, this, this smog in the middle of the newsroom. And there used to be smog when you came up the Southeast Expressway. They get rid of it, thank God. That's what he wants. He wants to go back to the time when you can't see the stars anymore. You know, what speaking is up with that? Speaking of low-hanging smoke, which has nothing to do with this, but you just mentioned yep. it's all. Do you remember you and I went somewhere for work purposes many years ago uh, where uh, you literally could not see two feet in front of you. Do you remember where that was? No. It was a casino. We're not sure which in Connecticut. Oh, you and I used to rail against uh, casinos before we right. had them in Massachusetts. So yeah. we decided, a couple of listeners said, maybe you should actually go see what they're like. So we went to a slots parlor at either Foxwoods or Mohegan Sun, and it was like all 85-year-old people on ventilators smoking. <laughs> It was like it was yeah, like I don't think they'd be on the ventilator well, while they that's were smoking. It, it might it was explode. Like, it was like a Civil War hospital. <laughs> it was it was bad. Essentially, what it was like. It was really bad, and the smoke was pretty thick, which has nothing to do with anything. Rebecca and Car, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thanks for calling us. Hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Hey. How are you? Great. Good. Um, thank yeah, you. So, Marjorie, thank you for talking about the pollution. It makes means a lot to me. Oh, um, me anyway, too. Yeah, I'm all about the environment. So I'm an organic farmer, certified organic farmer Ooh. in Massachusetts. Oh, wonderful. But, um, <clears throat> thank you. Um, so um, almost 10 years ago, my daughter was on the way to school and suffered a very serious um, brain injury. Oh. She got oh. in a car with a girl. She got in a car with a girl um, in front of the school, and they crashed in front of the school. Anyway, um, so... You know, fast forward now, she's been in all different facilities. Thank God for the Boston Hospital. She's still alive, but unable to walk, talk, and move. Oh, I'm and, so, um, so, and she's 26 now, and um, just turned 26 in October. And um, I, I want to do something simple. I want to see her again, and I want to hug her again. Oh. The most important thing for brain injuries is family to be close. And um, she's surrounded by strangers and, you know, they, I'm sure they care, but, um, you know, she doesn't know anybody. She, she I, from what I hear with a severe brain injury like this, they could possibly remember. We don't really know what she knows, but she responds to me and through her breath, 
in her eyes. And, um, you know, I, she does so much better with family around, mm. and she's declined greatly. Thank God for Spalding in Charlestown. Um, but she's increased with many, many problems since COVID started. And where she is, there's been a lot of COVID. Yeah. And uh, so we're just scared every day. And, not, uh, and on top of being scared every day, we just, I want to be like a primal mother, father thing. I just want to be around her yeah. and hold her hand. I have been reading through FaceTime with her a lot, and um, but it's, I want to be able to hug her again. It's a simple, maybe mundane thing, but... No, not at all. So, Rebecca, that was, <laughs> that was totally beautiful. That was really... And we wish you that fantasy uh, come true as soon as is humanly possible. Your daughter's um, lucky to have you. Rebecca, thank you for that... Cole. That was a pretty well, good way to That end is this. one of the toughest things, isn't it? You can't yeah. see the people that you love. You can't be um, wow. close to them. Okay. Uh, we are talking about life after coronavirus. No, for we're a few not. Mo- oh, we're moving on? Yes, we are. Okay. I'm a little confused today. There's so much. I noticed so that. Many I noticed you're a little bit confused. Okay. We're not talking about COVID anymore. I'm not we're going to talk to the District Attorney of Suffolk yes, County, Rachel are. Rons, is going to be here for Ask the DA, taking our questions. And your calls at 877-301-8970. That's next. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Margregan. Joining us online for a monthly edition of Ask the DA is Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins. You can reach the district attorney by calling her at 877-301-8970. You can send her an email to bpr at wgbh.org. Rachel Rollins, good to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, Yeah, great to talk to you, um, DA Rollins. So um, reforming the police has been something that government agencies have been working on uh, all through the Black Lives uh, matter movement this spring since killing of, of George Floyd. Um, we have some legislation pending up on Beacon Hill that Governor Baker uh, needs to approve or not approve. You wrote him a letter along with State Representative Liz Miranda from the 5th Suffolk District. What you, would you tell him? Well, we just said, um, you know, Governor, we, we want you to sign this uh, bill into law with no amendments. We, it is a compromise. I think um, there has been a lot of hard work done by our House and Senate and the conference committee, and we cannot let perfection be the enemy of good. And so, um, you know, I think the governor has led well on some of these issues, um, but I know he is risk averse. We need to move forward because um, literally people's lives depend on it. When did you send this uh, letter? I know it's been published as well. When did you send this letter, District Attorney? Yesterday? We sent it yesterday, but we've been vocal. I mean, Representative Miranda um, was authored the provision to limit no-knock warrants, and um, I have been a steady drum, I would say, with respect to making sure these reforms happened even prior to the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. Did you have you heard back from the governor or any, any of his people since you uh, did this? No, I haven't heard yet. But we, of course, Jim, paid him the respect of 
letting him know the op-ed uh-huh. was coming out with and Presley, um, Representative Miranda, myself, and then the president of the NAACP Boston branch, Shanisha Sullivan, and that we were going to, two of us were going to be sending the governor a letter. We, we didn't, you know, bombard him. We let his uh, chief counsel, Bob Ross, know, as well as his comms people. We haven't heard back yet. Uh, it, you, know, you mentioned that Liz Miranda was the author of an amendment uh, to this bill that related to no-knock uh, warrants. And just to be and I, I'm assuming since part of your letter focuses on that, that appears to be one of the concerns that the governor may have with this uh, this bill. Just so people are, are clear, you are not saying, from what I understand, that there cannot be no-knock warrants, but you're saying they would have to be under fairly limited circumstances. Can you describe when they'd be appropriate, District Attorney? Sure. So there's a lot of people speaking on this issue um, that don't actually have any cases uh, they handle where no-knock warrants are issued, right? So DAs are actually the ones where the overwhelming majority of those type of cases um, where a no-knock warrant might be requested by law enforcement the DAs have jurisdiction over them. So I think it's important, Jim, to first set the table as there's a lot of people speaking about these things that don't have any experience in the matter. One. Two, um, most of these warrants are requested by law enforcement. Um, The DA might not even necessarily be involved um, or present when that member of law enforcement goes before either a clerk magistrate likely, um, or potentially a judge. What Representative Miranda is demanding is that it has to be in front of a judge, number one, um, and that there are requirements put in place to make sure that there aren't small children in the home or elders in the home as well. And what we have seen, unfortunately, in Massachusetts is families that have been deeply impacted and traumatized, some killed, um, as a result of mistakes that were made by law enforcement during these no-knock warrants. And when law enforcement people, I know that many have objected to this provision, say it puts us, meaning police officers, at greater risk. What's their argument and what's your response? Yeah, I, I mean, I am in no way advocating for law enforcement to be put at risk. I'm saying that, that most of the no-knock warrants that are issued are for drug-related crimes. Right. So um, let's be honest about the fact that there's no state database telling us how many no knock warrants are issued, what type of things they're issued for. Law enforcement operates in this cloak of secrecy and darkness and then wants to speak without having anything supporting it. Right. Wish as a woman I was able to do this. Right. Just talk about whatever I wanted without having to back it up and add my melanin to it, and it's exponentially worse, that I have to literally cite as if I am a Harvard Law Review article every time I speak. But random members of law enforcement who aren't members of the community where these no-knock warrants are happening have never been themselves racially profiled, haven't had their door kicked in, and you know an officer allegedly trips and shoots somebody in the head in your family in front of you, and oops, sorry, um, my bad. We're no longer in that, uh, in that world any longer. So what I will say is, yes, they have an absolute right to be safe, but engaging in this behavior in the first place is not safe. Use some of your police 
experience and surveil the home to see who's actually there. When we cited to Brianna Taylor, Jim, we know, no, that's not Massachusetts, but we know the person they were looking for was arrested earlier that day. Yeah. Hard stop. Why are you kicking open this woman's door? Um, and, you know, her boyfriend, who, by the way, black people are allowed to have license to carry, and he did, with a lawful firearm, returned fire on somebody he thought was breaking into his home. Miraculously, you know, it is not only white people that get to have the castle doctrine applied to them, um, you know, stand the ground applied to them, as well as other, you know, uh, citizens arrest, right? So that's uh, Ahmad Arbery is the citizen arrest police and this castle doctrine and stand your ground. It applies to us as well when people kick our door down and additionally when they're wrong. Our number is 877-301-8970 if you want to speak to the attorney, uh, to the attorney general, to the uh, district uh-huh. attorney for, we'll get to that later, to the district attorney <laughs> of uh, Suffolk County. I have a question for her, a comment about anything she's had to say. It's 877-301-8970. I'm sorry, Marjorie. I, I also, in this uh, letter to the governor, um, uh, District Attorney Rollins, you also mentioned your concern about facial recognition technology, which you say is inaccurate uh, up to 30% of the time, and particularly uh, inaccurate when it involves uh uh, people of color, particularly black women, uh, which I did not know. Um, do you think that the governor is is not aware of the problems with facial recognition technology? Why did you rec- uh, mention that? Yeah, so I think, you know, we have an opportunity to lead um, in with respect to regulating biometric surveillance systems, which is what a, a facial recognition technology is. But Marjorie, more to me, um, it is, and by the way, please call me Rachel. Stop with this other stuff. I feel like <laughs> oh, we're family. Okay, okay. We're not calling you Rachel, but go ahead, <laughs> District Attorney. <laughs> anyway, for me, guys, what it is is, you know, these are code, right? Code is used to enter this. And who are the people entering the code, right? So when we think about things, Marjorie, with respect to um, looking at, let's say, um, uh, airbags that are deployed, right? Who are the the, the dummies? And I don't mean that in, in a word like I'm calling somebody a dummy. I mean like the crash test right. um, like thing that was created was based on a man. No one ever predicted that a pregnant person could be driving a car otherwise. There are all these sort of implicit biases that are baked into everything we do. And what we're seeing is with facial recognition technology, it is baked in there as well. Like the overwhelming majority of the people typing these codes are not black women. Um, And so when, you know, facial recognition technology happens, there is some brilliant scholar at MIT that did this this um, research showing that, you know, when it's Jim Browdy's face, the computer is like, oh, we understand everything about you. That's my computer. <laughs> um, but when it's mine, it's like, does not compute. What is that thing? Is it a human or a beast? And hopefully not for, you know, other reasons, but it's because they didn't even contemplate, I'm assuming, like people with different facial, um, you know, uh, expressions or, um you know, uh, different face, facial makeup than a white male. So um, what I said in the letter that we drafted was, you know, look, 
please listen to us because it's actually us that are the ones that are harmed more than this deafening chorus of police unions, very few of whom the leadership is black women or black people or any of the communities that are screaming about the harm that we endure um, by this agency, these agencies that have very little oversight, very little regulation, and when they're left to their own devices, um, you know, read the globe. It's not going well, right? It's not going well that Officer Tully has his second OUI and a nurse whose spleen is, you know, severed as a result of his drunk behavior um, is scrambling to try to get, you know, accountability when this officer is for the second time by the Boston police picked up, um, not arrested, his service weapon is taken and his BPD issued car is driven back for him and he's issued a citation. Let me tell you, Jim, if that were you, even in your white male privilege, you wouldn't get that treatment. You'd be arrested and, and fingerprinted and, and, and field interrogated, right? Um, or you would get uh, field sobriety tests, I'm sorry, would be administered on you. And if they smelled alcohol, they'd notice it, right? Why are police treated differently? Um, and I will end with when these police associations who have the audacity at times to say we are beyond reproach, I will remind you that the former president of the Boston Police Patrolmen's Association has now been indicted with, I think, five rapes of children that we are looking into that, by the way, the BPD knew about decades ago, at least one of them. So I am, I am not going to mince my words when it comes to we need regulation and we need it now. You know, the police detective, uh, former police detective, Robert Tully, that the district attorney was just mentioning, in, in 2009, he almost hit an MBTA transit uh, c- cop and then took off. And the cop, <laughs> the MBTA cop chased him uh, and, and did, um, was about to arrest him or put the handcuffs on him. And then his police badge came out and suddenly uh, the Boston Police Department sent three policemen yeah, down to rescue him. Right at that moment. I don't buy it. And not to mention, when you read the report, the police report, it's, I'm not joking, it's written like, and then because I made him wait that long, he had to use the restroom on himself, right? If that were you, Marjorie, or me, they'd say she was so drunk, she peed her pants, right? Or, you know, something else. So I am, believe me, I am privy to these records. I am tired of the police being able to police themselves, not arrest themselves, have fake internal affairs investigations or anti-corruption investigations that go nowhere, and then not tell the DA's office. And when we finally find out, be able to cloak themselves in a statute of limitations to say, and now you can't prosecute me. It, it, is, it is adding insult to injury to communities. Let's stay on Tully for a second, though, here. Let's assume that Charlie Baker does what the four of you urged him to do and signs the Beacon Hill legislation as is. We know that uh, that uh, Mayor Walsh is uh, says he is totally committed and has begun implementing the recommendations from the Boston Police Reform Task Force. If both of those were in place, how would Tully have not escaped responsibility here if his fellow cops decided to cover for him, uh, district attorney. So 
here's what I will say. If it were in such, so he is a Boston police officer. Right. So even though all of these drunken escapades happened, I believe in Plymouth County or some other county that mm-hmm. was not Boston, I, some South Shore um, neighborhood. Um, my requirements, forget about the legislature, my requirements as DA um, would encompass all of this behavior, right? So I don't care. Um, under previous administrations, Jim, if you were arrested for domestic violence in Milton, but not in Mattapan, you wouldn't have to tell us about that because it wasn't Suffolk County. If you are a domestic abuser, I don't care if that happened in Prague, in Pluto, or in, you know, on Prince Street in Suffolk County. I want to know about what it is you're doing, if you are policing in my community, and if I, as the DA, can call you as a witness in a case where, you know, you are cloaked in credibility when you show up as a police witness. You put your finest uniform on, and we, as the prosecutors, present you, um, maybe not technically as an expert, right? We don't ask that you be declared one, but it is the closest thing possible. And I am no longer or ever have been able to stand um, with my bar license, by the way, and they are not licensed as of this point, putting my bar license on the, on the, um, at risk, cloaking you in credibility. So what would happen even if this legislation doesn't pass is in Suffolk County, you have to notify us of that. And if we find out that you did something and didn't notify us, I will be in, in, enacting graduated sanctions. And what does that mean? You are no longer permitted to testify in Suffolk County, period. So we won't be signing your overtime, right? And once they hear the word overtime, that's when the hair on the back of their neck sticks up. And they, you know, like I say to my seven-year-olds, turn your listening ears on, right? Because that means the $90,000 salary, you base salary you get, but the $170,000 you bring home every year because you get 80 grand, if my math is right, in overtime, you're not going to be getting that in Suffolk County any longer. Because if you're not complying with my requirements, you aren't going to be called as a witness. You can still be a Boston police officer. I can't stop you from doing that. The only control I have is who's in the, in the Boston Police Detective Homicide Unit, um, but you won't be called as a witness any longer. Our number is 8773. Oh, sorry, what's that? And under the legislation, Jim, I think the, the M Post C, the Massachusetts Peace Officer Standard Training Commission, mm-hmm. there could be a duty that can certify, restrict, revoke, or suspend any certification um, if and refer cases for criminal prosecution. So I think under the legislation that we're hoping the governor doesn't change, there'll be a lot of work that that post commission can do um, to make sure that officers are complying with requirements or could lose their certification. Our phone number is 877-301-8970. If you want to speak directly to the district attorney of Suffolk County, you can be from Suffolk County, but you don't have to be if you have a criminal justice kind of question. And we're talking, of course, to the District Attorney of Suffolk County, Rachel Rollins. What is the deal with certification? What what does that mean, that police officers will be certified? Uh, does that mean the same thing as a license, or what exactly is that? Yeah, I mean, we we use the words, I think, interchangeably. The way that it is 
now um, being proposed, I believe, is that you have, we have three years from this time for them to meet certain requirements. And like, you know, I am barred, right? Not as in I, I have a license in order to be a lawyer. And remember, Marjorie, I like to say to you and Jim, every time I'm with you, Whoever cuts your hair and dies, or you don't need dye. Whoever cuts well, I do actually. (laughs) True confession. She was talking about Rudy Giuliani when she said that. She didn't mean us. Have a Rudy Giuliani moment. But but here's my point: the person who cuts our hair and and dyes our hair or does whatever, they are licensed, right? The individual that fixes my wiring in my house, an electrician, licensed right? Barbers, hairstylists, and they don't have the legal and lethal authority to kill you. They can give you bad bangs. They can give you bad highlights. They can do something in your house where you have to turn a light off, you flip it up as opposed to down, but they don't get a right, a service weapon that they can use with no oversight and take your life in an instant. And that is the way I like to describe we, there are like 44 other states where police officers are licensed um, or, or looked at in that capacity. Massachusetts isn't one of them. So that is something I am proud that the governor very shortly after, I think, June 17th proposed that. But what it does most importantly, Marjorie, is it allows them to decertify you, right? So it allows them to take something away from a police officer whereby they are no longer permitted to be in this profession, right? And so there are individuals, I think the commission membership, three would be appointed by the governor, one is a police chief, one is a retired justice of the Superior Court, and one is a social worker. Um, And that social worker comes from a list of five that are nominated by the National Association of Social Workers, Massachusetts chapter. Then there are three that would be appointed by the attorney general. One is a law enforcement officer below the rank of sergeant. One is a law enforcement officer appointed from a list of five that come from the Mass Association of Minority Law Enforcement Officers. And one is appointed um, as an attorney from a list of five from the Civil Rights and Social Justice Section Council of the Mass Bar Association. And then three are appointed jointly by the governor and the AG, um, one of which is a list of five that comes from the Mass Commission Against Discrimination. And then that commission will also have an executive director. So I think they took a lot of time to think about how are we getting good and different voices involved, but also people who are actually members of law enforcement, right? So it is not unlike what the Boston Police Patrolman's Association said the other day, void of any members of law enforcement. That is absolutely not true. They have a strong voice involved, but it also includes community, right? And other people that are deeply impacted. So the commission, Marjorie, we don't know exactly what it is going to look like. We have some parameters that have been set up. Um, it's going to be a while, I think, before that actually happens. But I'm happy that the governor um, took that leap and said he's going to require it. Let's take some calls. 877-301-8970. You're obviously listening to the district attorney of uh, Suffolk County, who wants to be called Rachel, but will not be on this show. Uh, Mike from Framingham, and you're on with Rachel Rollins, Suffolk County DA. Welcome, Mike. Hi, thank you. 
Sure. Uh, the question for the district attorney is, I have been arrested twice in the last nine years, and both times I pleaded to the lessest charge on the advice of my attorney. Uh, on the first one and on the second one, I did not have an attorney. Uh, in both cases, by the way, the police officers that arrested me lied through their teeth. But that being said, will that deny me the right to own a firearm? Because prior to those two arrests, I had the right to own a firearm. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, will I, will that bar me from owning a firearm for the rest of my life? We got it. How about it? That's a good, great question. So each of the cities and towns throughout our Commonwealth um, have different requirements regarding lawful, and we only want people to lawfully own firearms, right? Um, so you're right, Mark. You've seen this tension between the Second Amendment and then requirements where, um, you know, your chief of police, if you are from Framingham, I don't know if you live there now, um, whether it's the chief of police in Framingham that gets to make the determination as to whom can have a, a lawful firearm there. I know in Boston there is an entire process you must go through in order to get a license to carry um, here. So... You know, we can talk offline. Framingham is not part of Suffolk County, but um, I can absolutely, if you leave a number with um, whoever you called into, have somebody from our office get you the requirements um, regarding your city or town and what you have to um, do in order to get the chief of police to say, yes, I believe that Mike should have um, should have a firearm. So please also understand there might be, and this is not directed at you, Mike, Mike but questions about mental health. Um, there are going to be questions about a prior criminal record or any charges potentially of, you know, um, rest or restraining orders that are civil at times might have been issued. So there are inquiries into lots of those type of things. But let's find out specifically what Framingham requires if that's where you're from and we can get you some answers. Okay? Mike, don't, don't hang up. Stay on hold. A producer will get your contact info, and we will give it to Rachel Rollins. Thanks for your call, Mike. You know, Rachel Rollins, you're a district attorney. You're also obviously very outspoken about police reform. Lots of times district attorneys are not that outspoken because they work with police officers so closely. And even though we did uh, you know, pass this, not we, the legislature passed um, this police reform bill, uh, our, our colleague Mike Dean pointed out in one of his stories that the 92 to 67 vote is one of the narrowest margins uh, for a major bill passed during Bob DeLeo's tenure as, as House Speaker. So I wonder what it is about politicians and, and cops. I mean, we all, you know, over and over, everybody says, you know, this, it, it, you know, the, the vast majority of police officers are doing their job right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when, when cops are really misbehaving and getting away with very bad things, I'm surprised that, and I know the union is there to protect all its members and stuff, but this does them no good, I think, their, their stance that, that, you know, oh, you're all attacking the police and this is terrible because people are not attacking the police. They want to get the corruption out of police and they want to make sure people are not, you know, have no-knock warrants in their home and, and, and treated brutally by the cops. So you are different than most politicians on this. I mean, uh, I'm sure you've noticed that. <laughs> 
I certainly have. Um, so I said, um, and I will say, you know, it, to members of law enforcement, if you are doing your job honorably and applying, you know, and, and complying with all of the rules and requirements with respect to the, the duty you have to protect and serve, we are going to have a wonderful relationship. I will be the, the most loyal and supportive ally you could ever imagine. I will stand in front of you in communities that you are not from, um, have never lived in, and don't look like, and defend your, your honor and your service more than any other DA has ever done in the history of the Suffolk County DA's office. But oh, wait, wait. what I will also do is stand up and hold you accountable more than any other DA has in the history of the Suffolk County DA's office if you dishonor that badge. And what we have seen with bystander requirements, Marjorie, now is that, you know, I read something online that said, if you have 10 bad police officers and a thousand good ones that know about the 10 and don't do anything or say anything, you have a thousand and ten bad police officers. I'm sorry, right? And a lot of pushback I get is on this joint venture theory that I don't necessarily believe in. But what we are not going to do is allow, even if they are new on the job, other police officers to watch somebody and know it was not in Massachusetts, but squeeze the life out of a man for eight minutes and 46 seconds while you sit and watch. It's just not going to happen. And you have power and authority and dominance that other communities don't. Right. So what is it? Why is it different about police? You ask. It's police union. They are different than any other union. And Marjorie, I am the daughter of two loyal union members. My dad is in the Boston Teachers Union or was. And my mom is a double union member because she was a school nurse in the Boston public schools. So she's in her nursing union and her Boston uh, teachers union. I love unions and I want them endorsing and supporting and fighting like hell for their membership. What is different about police unions, though, is they get to label you soft on crime, right? Yeah. So they get all of the conservatives, and, and they like to use language like we're protecting us from them. And who's the us and who's the them? The difference now, guys, is the them now has uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley living in their community. The them now has District Attorney Rollins living in their community. The them now has Representative China Tyler, Representative Nika Elogardo, and Representative Liz Miranda living in their community, as well as Representative John Santiago and, and many others. And Boston City Council President Kim Janey, um, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And so what is different is that I, I come with a deep respect, Marjorie, deep and wide respect for the military and for law enforcement. My dad is a Vietnam War veteran, former corrections officer. I have an uncle with decades of time in the Mass State Police, great uncles that have served our country and our communities with dignity, not only as soldiers and wartime soldiers and veterans, but police. Deep respect there, but I also believe we should be beyond reproach when we have that power. And I include myself in that statement. We're going to take a break in a second, but before we do, we're going to talk to Neil in Middleborough. He's on with Rachel Rollins. Hello, Neil. Hello, Jim. Thanks a lot for taking my call. Pleasure. Um, 
just about the, the facial recognition stuff, uh, I, I read through most of the police reform bill, and I read the part that said uh, police can get a warrant signed by a superior court judge um, to use this biometric technology, or if they have exigent circumstances, they, they can also use this technology. They just have to justify why they used it. And what the district attorney is saying, the very technology itself is racially biased because of the people who made it, uh, white computer programmers made it. So why should cops have the option of getting a warrant or using or trying to justify through exigent circumstances if the very technology itself is, according to her, defunct? Good question. How about it? It's, it's a great question, uh, Neil. And it's why I, along with several other of my colleagues across the country, um, said we wanted to ban known... Uh, well, we, we talked... So I have said and testified in front of our state legislature um, about facial recognition technology to say there should be a ban on it. Um, and that's a hard stop for me. What I think the legislation has said is that, you know, they, the RMG still has it and it can be used in limited circumstances. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, Neil, but I will say I can't get everything that I want. Right? Like in the letter we sent to Governor Baker, we said this is a compromise. And what I don't want to do is have all of the good things in this potential, you know, um, opportunity for for change to go out the window if I'm going to, you know, grab on and, and drag down and say, if you allow this at all, no, nothing goes forward. So you are absolutely right. I think if things have a 30% error rate and over one, a 30% error rate is way too high in anything, right? That's one out of three, you know, times almost. Um, but I think you're right. Like, uh, you know, we are compromising. Uh, Neil, thank you for your call. We're talking to Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins. She's with us till the top of the show, taking our questions and yours. Keep your dial on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio. The number again, 877-301-8970. You can email us at bpr at wgbh.org. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. We're joined for this hour by Rachel Rollins. She joins us once a month and joins you once a month as the DA of Suffolk County. Take your questions and calls. The number is 877-301-8970. Virginia from Dorchester. You're on with the district attorney. Hi, Virginia. Hi, uh, Jim and Marjorie. Uh, this hey. is the, the third time I've listened to uh, District Attorney uh, Rollins uh, on GBH, and I want, first of all, I want to say that uh, I'm a family member of law enforcement, and I support honorable uh, law enforcement who do that, just that, protect and serve. I'm so happy that I supported you, District Attorney. I want to thank you for the way that you uh, explain in layman's term the, the, the legislation uh, about uh, police reform that is on the table and what we are trying to uh, get to. So I'm only calling you to say uh, thank you. And in a very tough environment for you as a woman of color, as someone who is right in the forefront uh, in law enforcement, who are defending 
uh, not only uh, law enforcement, but um, most importantly, uh, the community. I just want to say thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Jim and Marjorie. Beautiful show. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank Virginia, you very you can't much. see, but the district attorney is smiling. We see her on Zoom. I just wanted to Virginia, communicate that. I want Virginia to be leaving me messages daily if she can. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis, but Dennis. You, oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, Marjorie, what, what I really try to do as much as I can is I want, it, it, is, it is actually a, re, a show of respect to the community. They don't have time, just like I didn't before I ran for this job, to be a state rep. Just explain it to me in words that I understand. It's not being, you know, condescending, but can you say it so that my 16-year-old junior in high school understands what the hell we're talking about? That's the way I want our government and our legislature to work, right? It does nothing for me to pretend I'm smarter than everyone else and no one understands what I'm talking about. So I appreciate you, Virginia. Um, I do thank your your family members in law enforcement for their service, and I will continue working as hard as I can to explain things in a way that I understand them. Rachel Rollins, virtually every time that you're with us, uh, I guess until this is finally resolved, we'll spend a few minutes talking about Sean Ellis. And uh, for those who are unfamiliar with Sean's case, uh, many people have seen Netflix's uh, Trial 4, which is a name for the trial that never happened. Uh, Sean Ellis was, just for background for people, convicted in the mid-90s. Pardon me. He was tried in uh, the mid-90s for uh, killing Boston Police Detective John Mulligan. Two hung juries in the third trial, convicted, a new trial ordered. It uh, never happened. And as many people remember, uh, when there was an interim DA after your predecessor, Dan Conley, resigned, the charges, uh, a new tr- the charges were dropped, but at the same time that interim DA Pappas dropped the charges, both he and then and now uh, police commissioner uh, Gross said they were not being uh, dropped because he was innocent. In fact, they both said he was guilty. It's just too much time had passed, etc. So, with that background, my understanding is there are three issues, and if you could just briefly tell us which ones you were looking at and which you aren't. One is a gun possession uh, conviction that was not uh, dropped. Two, you said recently, I think to me and others, that the, uh, quote, dirty cops in those uh, who were involved in this case, you were looking into whether or not uh, what other cases they might have been involved in and where their work may have tainted a conviction. And third, uh, I've asked you and others have asked you if you are considering doing the opposite of what was done by uh, Commissioner Gross and Interim DA Pappas and uh, making uh, a public declaration exonerating uh, Sean Ellis since he will never get an opportunity to trial to be fully uh, exonerated. Can you briefly respond to all three of those? Yes. So with respect to the first one, the gun possession conviction, um, Rosemary Scarpiccio just yesterday, I believe, officially filed a motion for a new trial with respect to that gun possession charge. And I am in the throes, as we speak, of reviewing that significant document and append- and, and the appendix uh, or appendices that she mm-hmm. filed with it. So okay. she has started the ball moving with respect to the last small piece left um, for Sean Ellis. So remember, Jim, trial one 
there was actually a guilty finding with respect to possession of the firearm. But the jury could not agree, so it was a hung jury and a mistrial was declared regarding the armed robbery of said gun yeah, right. and murder with said weapon, mm -hmm. right? So that's trial one, guilty of possession. Trial two, jury can't agree on the armed robbery of that gun and the murder with that gun. And so mistrial, trial two. Trial three, they, this, my office, not under my leadership, pulls a few witnesses, you know, changes the, 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 uh, the theory a little bit, doesn't call some of the witnesses or one of them in particular, is able to secure a guilty verdict of the armed robbery of that gun as well as the homicide, the first-degree homicide um, of, of Detective Mulligan. Ultimately, Judge Ball ends up granting a new trial because those three police officers in particular, Brazel, Acera, and Robinson, are investigated by the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office and charged um, and indicted. Brazel turned on his two former, you know, uh, co-conspirators right. and, and co-defendants. So all of that to be said, um, we are absolutely looking at the gun possession conviction because we now have a means by which we can. Remember, I, I have the most power as DA prior to you getting into court, when you've been arrested and before I decide whether we're going to charge you, I still have quite a bit of power during the process of prosecuting you. My power significantly, if not almost entirely, um, is gone once you have been sentenced and convicted without your defense attorney filing something to say, hey, something went wrong here, okay? So that's what Rosemary's done with respect to one. With respect to two, dirty cops, yes, we have asked, I have asked um, for not only every single file my office has in its possession regarding Sean Ellis, but all of the files that the U.S. Attorney's Office has regarding Detective uh, Brazel, Acera, and Robinson. And very candidly, I've also said, do you have anything about Mulligan, the victim mm -hmm. himself, or Keeler? Uh, who was also deeply involved in this case. And then I've asked for the Boston Police Department. I want the IAD, Internal Affairs Division, and ACD, Anti-Corruption Division, files on all five of those officers. So we are asking to get our eyes on all of this. That's with respect to dirty cops, all five I'm mm -hmm. looking at. Not at. Mulligan himself, the victim, who we know uh, there were several internal affairs and even anti-corruption investigations into him before his death. And just because you're being investigated, of course, does not mean you deserve any, anything that happened to that officer. We will be looking into that as well. And the last thing is absolutely part of what I ran on, forget about Sean Ellis. If we were involved in harm or wrongdoing, we apologize. That's what I teach my, my seven-year-old and my kids since they've been born, and for whatever reason in law enforcement, we love clinging on to the false idea that we never make mistakes. And I believe, and I have said this out loud, not only to you, uh, but to the individuals that did it, I think it showed incredibly poor sportsmanship, <laughs> quite frankly, um, when we say we can't prove you're guilty, but you are. We don't get to do that. We have a higher burden and a standard. And if we can't prove you're guilty, then we can't prove you're guilty. And the sentence needs to end right there. So what are you going to do about that? So what I will say is 
if there comes a time where, um, and there will, where we respond to this motion for a new trial, and um, if a judge, like a judge did, with respect to the armed robbery of the firearm and a first degree murder. Now imagine how serious, there's nothing more serious than murder that we handle, that a judge said the behavior of the Boston police was so egregious that she overturned a first degree murder conviction of a Boston police detective. Yeah. Um, if we get to that point on the very, very significantly below a first degree murder and an armed robbery on the possession of a firearm and there is a motion for a new trial that's granted, we will be null processing that that firearm charge. There will be a press conference that will be very, very different than the one you saw in trial for. And so you might speak to ex- public exoneration of Sean Ellis is what you're saying. What we will likely do is speak to the harm uh, that was committed um, in throughout this 27-year ordeal um, and the, the changes we have made to make sure um, that this will not happen again and explaining to the public that when you know a case, it's as if it did not happen. And so, Mr. Ellis, as, as far as I am concerned, if we get there, Jim, and we have not yet. I understood. Um, but you know, for me, you know, you, you are as far as I am concerned, exonerated regarding what it is that happened. Because if we can't prove it and we're going back to Mm -hmm. the point as if it did not occur, I don't get to later say, well, we can't prove it and we go back to before it happened, but you did it. That's not the way the system works. My last quick quick question. Were you suggesting a second ago that you've actually spoken to Commissioner Gross about his declaration at that press conference? No, no, no. What I'm t- I can't control what the Boston police do, but in homicides, Jim, we control everything. Okay. So as of right now, um, what I am saying is I the press conference would be very different under my administration. And I think we all know that because it was scurried through two weeks before I was sworn in after it was very clear I was going to be the next DA, right? So if it happened right after September 4th when I you know, won my primary, but there was still one other candidate. Maybe they could say we didn't know where this was going to go. But it happened in mid-December after I had won my my general election and I was the district attorney elect. They scurried to get this through. It would have been handled very, very well. Everybody, well, most people know that there's been a terrible spike of COVID virus in prisons around the country in Massachusetts, MCI, Norfolk. Uh, this was story was done by, uh, um, I'm not sure who did it, but anyway, the spike of 172 pres- uh, prisoners in November, MCI conquered, recent surge, et cetera. And I know you've been concerned about this, but we're getting an email from Michael from the South End on the other end of things. He said uh, he lives on Chester Park on Mass Ave on the South End, where a recently released inmate went on a shooting spree and endangered all in my neighborhood. Police Commissioner Gross expressed concern. What is the current state of affairs? Yes, so we are absolutely monitoring any person that is getting released for a COVID-related reason. So let's take a step back, Marjorie. Right after the state of emergency was declared by Governor Baker back, I think, on March 10th um, or 11th was when that happened. Before that Friday, before the end of that week, my office had already reached out to um, the public defender, CPCF, Anthony Benedetti and his 
exceptional leadership team to say, look, we know carceral facilities are places where the two things we are being ordered to do, practice extreme hygiene and remain, you know, six to 10 feet away or six feet away from people. Even if you are complying with everything you're supposed to, you can't do them in certain places, right? We've seen it in nursing homes. We've seen it in veterans' homes, unfortunately, and the tragedy that happened there. Um, and we've also seen it in our carceral facilities. So what we did was pre-trial detainees. Remember, this is there's another word for them, innocent people, right? But they've been charged with crime. They, have not, they might have been held um, under a dangerousness standard, or yeah. a bail, uh, we've worked really quickly to make sure those individuals were, were released. And yes, there's a very small handful of pretrial detainees that when they got out, they re-offended, and now they're unfortunately going to have to go back to a place where they might be more susceptible to getting it. There have been another group of people, Marjorie, where post-conviction sentenced people have been released pending the outcome of their case. So Arnie King was one of them. Um, you know, Pedro Valentin is another. And we are making sure that those individuals are not harming the community. What this individual spoke about that called in, they have now been returned um, potentially to, uh, to a carceral facility. And any claims they might have regarding being released um, for fear of contracting COVID, we are fully aware that when we did it the first time, you harmed and did not comply, and they will likely, there will be a strong opposition from my office of them being out again. Lauren in Brookline, you're next on Boston Public Radio with Rachel Rollins, Suffolk County DA. Hi, Lauren. Hey there. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so I'm a licensed private investigator here in Massachusetts. I've been licensed for three years, um, and it's currently a license that's issued by the state police certification unit, um, which I always thought was a conflict of interest, given that it tends to be private investigators who are uh, working with defense against police officers. And currently, um, my experience and that of others has been that if you're not a member of the (laughs) old boys network, um, they really put you through hell and high water to get this license, usually denying it. And had it not been for the tenacity of my state reps and my incredibly talented uh, bureaucracy-fighting attorney sister, I would not have this license. So I was hoping that yeah. in the police reform bill we would see some of um, some, you know, certification unit, um, you know, reform. <laughs> but I, I know it's not there, and um, I think it's just, you know, it's not everyone's priority. But it, I'm wondering how, uh, you know private investigator licenses and other certifications that the police hold might change in the future. It's a great question, Lauren. Lauren, first of all, your wonderful sister, I want her, if she's interested, to call our office and see if (laughs) she wants to be um, saving the world as as a potential prosecutor. But yeah, I agree. I mean, there are lots of licenses that the Boston police um, control as well as the state police uh, control. And so what I think might be a good thing to consider is, can there be a community person that is also involved in that process, right? What I really want to make sure we, we look differently at is, is like, or, or one of the glaring things that have been so frustrating to me as DA is there's no audit function in our office, right? Anywhere else you work, I come from Mathport, 
Um, we had an auditor. I come from Mac Dot in the T. We have auditors. We have internal auditors. We have external auditors. We are regulated by the in Inspector General. We are regulated by the state auditor. We, I mean, all these people are looking, or even just walking in and pulling out a situation and and looking at a file to say, is everything that's supposed to happen, did it happen the way that it should? And and that's what I get worried about is when people are allowed to operate in complete darkness, right, with no oversight, of course, there's there's going to be potential corruption. Of course, there are going to be people that, you know, feel like they have all this power and can wield it in ways that are, you know, I hope positive, but potentially not. And so I like the idea of maybe you having your state rep or others request that there's a community member involved or some sort of mandatory transparency like are there reports that are given out about how many applications came in what are how many of them are women how many of them are from the community how many of them you know like we can't measure what we don't like measure uh, that's not the best way to say that but i think you get what i'm saying right like we need to write down or figure out what the hell is going on so we can see like that's interesting Every person that applied for a private investigator license for the last three years was a man, every single one of them. And then it's like, oh, no, 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 we had nine women and they were all denied. Okay, well, let's look into that. Why? Right. And if there are separate and distinct reasons for each of them that meet our muster, okay. But I think we can look at patterns and make ourselves better when we do that. So I, I appreciate you bringing it to my attention and I encourage you to to demand have your wonderful sister start working on that or your um elected officials it's a good suggestion lauren thank you for the call your know, district attorney when you were on tv with me a couple of weeks ago i was at, i mentioned that you had been uh consulting with the incoming biden administration about criminal justice issues and one of the questions yep. i asked you was if you had a preference if you had recommendations as to who uh president biden might appoint as the successor Andrew Lelling, since obviously he, most of the U.S. attorneys will turn over, uh, and you gave me a name or two. And what I was remiss in not asking you, was there any discussion with you about being the U.S. attorney, and do you have an interest? <laughs> Jim Browdy. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, you were my favorite, because I love, just like me, you always ask the question. So, um, you know that my real background is actually in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I do. Um, I worked in the Department uh, of Justice in the District of Massachusetts um, for almost five years. Um, I was fortunate enough to work. I was hired by uh, U.S. Attorney Michael Sullivan, who's a former DA himself out of mm -hmm. Plymouth, um, and then worked under U.S. Attorney Lauks and U.S. Attorney uh, Ortiz. Um, in the civil division, did asset forfeiture work and criminal division as well. So, um, yes, I have been asked um, with respect to whether or not I would consider um, being con considered for the U.S. attorney position. I'm super humbled. Um, you know, I I will say that I am I am very very happy where I am, but I will also say. Um, being asked to be an assistant United States attorney, Jim, has been described as the job of a lifetime. So people stop what they're doing. I did. I had just joined a firm seven months prior and left after seven months to become an assistant United States attorney. So if being an assistant United States attorney is the job of a lifetime, what is being the U.S. attorney?
right? So um, I am humbled. You know, I am absolutely going to be very involved in that process because it means a lot to me who's in that role and how they lead as, as the sort of chief law enforcement officer for our Commonwealth on the federal side. But remember, Jim, I have a lot of respect for Andy, and we agree on many more things than we disagree on. So the Jassy Carrera um, kidnapping murder that happened, that beautiful young woman on her, I believe, 23rd birthday, kidnapped from Boston, we believe murdered in Rhode Island, and her body was found in the trunk of a car in Delaware. Andy Lelling is handling that interstate kidnapping resulting in death. But By the way, but let me be clear. Career. My question with I'm Marion Rudd was not an anti-Andrew Lelling comment. We're out of the time. Oh, it was rather that there'll be very quickly. Who approached you asking if you were interested in the U.S. attorney position? So there are um, quickly. Not local as well. By the way, we didn't. Oh my cut goodness! That we the lost zoom. the sound. We lost a little ah, bit of the zoom there, so we. <laughs> That's right. Just well, in time, I, I the Zoom did not work. That there is interest. Oh, don't you, Dan? Don't you dare, hey. Jim? That didn't make it in there. But off the record, quickly. Can I be off the record? No, we're on the air. No, we're, I, on the we're on the air. We're on the air. <laughs> uh, we're on the air. We got to go, Rachel Rollins. Thank you uh, hey, so much. Thank as you so always. much. We'll see you next for month for being appreciate with us, DA Rollins. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow we'll have our Friday All-Stars, Emily Rooney, Callie Crossy, and Sue O'Connell. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murray, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aidan Conley, John the Club, Parker, Miles Smith, and Dave Goldstein. What's on TV, Jim? We're going to have a debate between two restaurant owners about whether we should have indoor dining. In favor, Steve DeFilippo from Davio's, Christopher Myers from Myers and Chang is against, and Brian O'Donovan is going to talk about a virtual Christmas Celtic Sojourn and a harpist extraordinaire will play. That's it. I'm Jim Browdy. I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day. Bye.